Talk Recorded live. Well, hello, this is Michael Adams. <clears throat> Nothing but the truth, one man's journey to find it. It's April the 10th, or excuse me, April the 8th, 2015. And uh, we're going to play some recordings from Visigoth uh, or Keith Hansen, uh, and uh, also uh, David McGowan. Maybe we'll add some extra. It's going to be, what, one, two, three, four, four recordings all together. Uh, Keith does a great job interviewing, or he did at least, and um, there's no point trying to repeat something that I could never even come close to. But I think you might find this interesting. Um, as far as redoing uh, Revelations or doing more on Revelation 13, I'm kind of getting bored of it at this point. I think I've proven the point that Revelation 13 has something to do about the Roman Empire. Whether anybody else accepts that or not, I don't know. It's kind of pointless at this point to try to prove the point. Uh, maybe I will. Maybe I'll finish it up. I don't know. But I need a break from it also. This is kind of fun yet disturbing. <laughs> uh, we'll start out with uh, uh, first one would be let's see, let's bounce back here to get to the point. One. Oops. Uh, okay. Yeah, the first thing we'll do is we'll do a recording from Visigoth. Um, Adorno and the Beatles. And then he reads out of some of uh, John Coleman's book, The Committee of 300. And then we will go on from there and listen to a couple of interviews with Dave McGowan about the Laurel Canyon and the hippie generation. And then we will also about the Charles Manson family. These are older recordings. Uh, relatively speaking, as far as the Internet world goes, uh, these are back uh, 2008, 2009. I think this one was a 2000, maybe seven or six, the first one. It was originally in 2007, I believe it was. Um, and then, I don't know. Might even do another one about... Uh, uh, Dave does... Uh, an interesting interview as well about the moon landing hosts. Maybe we'll tie it up. Anyways, that whole period of time is interesting in so many different ways. Um, you know, we look at the 60s and the decade of, uh, what's his face now? What's his name? Aleister Crowley. <laughs> you see the uh, Vietnam War was going on. He had the suppose of... Uh, moon landing, um, you had this hippie movement, you had the Beatles coming out, all this pop music. Um, why did it all happen when it happened? Good questions. You know. Was it all organic, coincidental, or was it deliberate? Um, I think this should be some food for thought. I really do like Dave McGowan. I do like Keith Hansen. I think he does a he does a really great job, and uh, I've uh, met a few folks through actually the irony of ironies through Keith Hansen's show, like uh, uh, Gordon Comstock, as I mentioned earlier. So maybe if uh, 
Maybe I'll even see if I can get a couple of Gordon's earlier shows and play them for you, folks. Um, and these guys really did. All this, this group of men, they know these guys are doing their research and kind of on the fringe uh, gathered uh, some very interesting folks and information, not only historically, but uh, just interesting researchers. And you hear a point of view that you just don't get to hear very often in life. And so I think you get a lot out of it. Um, and sometimes it's nice to take a little break from Rome, even though all roads do lead to Rome, and there's a, you can't avoid that. <laughs> if you, at least my journey has led that way. So, um, Yeah, look at it here, uh, yahoo.com before we get started. It uh, looks like uh, 10 Dark Secrets of Mormon History. Anglican Church began its existence with the purging of Catholics, despite the clear-cut imagery, image of family-oriented conservatives, the Church Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, commonly known as the Mormons. That'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Especially for me, being an ex-Mormon. And it looks like there's not a lot about the papacy today. Everything slowed down for some reason. I'm sure we'll find out down the road. So let's learn something there. Some, maybe we might learn something new about these 10 dark secrets. Listverse.com, for whatever it's worth. All right. The Anglican Church began existence but, uh, with the purging of Catholics, which is not necessarily a bad thing. And it was kind of a blessing in disguise for many of us, at least for, as far as our ancestors go. Uh, many American Protestant religions promoted slavery or the Ku Klux Klan. And, of course, if you look into the Ku Klux Klan and their connections, not only with Protestantism and with Freemasonry, but heavily, I believe it's the Knights of Columbus and the Catholic Church. <laughs> Uh, no one's innocent in that one, including the Mormons. Despite the clear-cut image of family-oriented conservatives that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, commonly known as the Mormons, presents to the world, it too has moments of uh, darkness in its past. Okay, from deeply disturbing acts of, by its founder, Joseph Smith, to atrocities committed in the name of God in Utah, Mormonism has some very dark secrets that even most members of the church don't know about. Imagine that. Fortunately, they are, are all well documented, many even by official Mormon uh, publications. Number 10, Mormons threaten to exterminate all Missourians. <laughs> and we won't go into detail here. Number 10, 9, Mormon militia burn village to the ground. Uh, number eight, Joseph Smith ordered Governor Abog's assassination. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, political intrigue going on during that, that period of time, especially the connection with the Jesuits. Man, Mormon settlers massacre 140 pioneers heading for California. That's number seven. That's a well-known historical fact. Brigham Young said mixed races uh, marriage should be punished by death, and also by the way he was uh, 
his handler was uh, Father de Smith, a Jesuit priest. Brigham Young says uh, only spilling blood could redeem those who left Mormonism. Imagine that. Joseph Smith, uh, this is number four now, recorded uh, conflicting visions. Yeah, imagine that, like every every other cult leader of the day and to this point. Imagine that. Nothing new there, whether it's Mormons, Ellen G. White, um, Sunday Adventists, uh, uh, what's this, Russell from uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Millerites, um, the Brethren, all these groups, the endless. Uh, Mormon scriptures contain an image of an Egyptian god with an erection. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine that. Didn't know about that one. That one was new to me. I had no idea about that. Um, Joseph Smith married 14-year-old girls, so I know he married at least one that was 14 years old. Uh, uh, polygamy severely oppressed women was number one. Those are just some of the more common things. And, of course, if you look at this stuff, then they have all these uh, wonderfully, oh, this is a wonderful magazine. It's not the greatest, but let me tell you, folks. And I have the pictures of big-breasted women with their boobs popping out of their, their uh, bikinis. But you know what? The fact of the matter is, <laughs> pretty much what they said is pretty close to the truth. Um, but by the way, it only scratches the surface when it comes to Mormonism. So. Anyways, we're not really going to talk about that today. I don't really feel like talking about it much, not on my own. Maybe I will, I will get around to uh, uh, the history of Mormonism because, you know, obviously being an ex-Mormon, I have issues with it. So, But I think, you know, it would be kind of nice to just listen to Keith Hansen, or the, a.k.a. Uh, Ivigoth, and, uh, or Visigoth, excuse me, and then uh, Dave McGowan. Uh, Dave McGowan, he's a lot of fun to listen to. And he's done a lot of good research as far as the moon hoax goes and about Laurel Canyon and the uh, popular, quote-unquote, rock and roll movement, if you will, uh, the roots of rock and roll and from the late 60s and early 70s coming out of uh, Laurel Canyon. And it's fascinating history, so I think you'll really get a lot out of it. Something good for you folks down the road to listen to when you're working and um, a good way to... Learn a few things and keep your mind off your troubles in some ironic way <laughs> by focusing on other people's troubles, I guess. I don't know. I know one thing. I do certainly enjoy listening to these interviews. Um, and once again, if you can also go to the thinkorbebeaten.com or, and then if you also put along that Amplic files, um, plus you got a lot more stuff there that you can listen to. You can even, uh, looks like you can even purchase certain episodes if you want. If you want to have like a DVD or a CD compilation, that would be the DVD, CD compilations. And it's definitely, I, I strongly recommend it's worth your time to check it out. You're going to learn about uh, some stuff that work, that works like Gordon Comstock's done or the Informer. Um, John Ackerman, um, James Montgomery, that's a real good one, <laughs> and the former. 
um, you're going to hear things that you just weren't quite told about as far as history goes. Actually, right today I've been listening to one from uh, this Amulet file number 100 down to the dross and <clears throat> the fractured fairy tale of framers, federalization, the Fed, and the con, and it has uh, Eric the Blacksmith. That's always he's fun to listen to. There's Dio and Al. You can just figure out who they are if you want. Um, Torch Americans, red, white, and blue, bag of BS. <laughs> but anyways, he's got some pretty good uh, citations, too, if you want or interested, like U.S. warmongering PDF, uh, timeline of British occupation after the colonies whipped the British. And then they had a fascinating whole Revolutionary War. Was it? What was it really about? Was it, I, I had the impression that it was ultimately a religious war. I could be wrong about it, but that's my impression, especially if you look at Washington, D.C., uh, that previously was called uh, Rome, Maryland. Uh, I've got a White House named after a Jesuit priest. Um, you got the Jesuit Pope, Pope Francis coming once again in September. I know I'm probably getting sick of me hearing, sick, and sick of me saying that, or are you hearing me say that? But, um, you know, we got the Pope can visit the White House and then have a joint session of Congress and then uh, address the UN. Who actually is running the show? It's a darn good question to ask, don't you think? I don't know if we'll be able to figure it out until it's too late, like usual, but um, what can we do about it? I don't know anyway, so um, get right with God. That's what I say first and foremost. Get right with God, the best true ability, and duck and cover, duck and cover. I guess I don't know what else we can do. The average chap in this country, that being the United States of America, has... We have very little recourse, really. Anyways, also got uh, Winning the Big One and History of Plots, Crimes, and Great Conspiracy to Overthrow Liberty in America, 1866. That would be very interesting. There's good things to read here, too, if we ever get around to it. So if I ever get start getting tired of uh, revelations and all that, so. and scripture and, and history of uh, and all those other things you know about like the Sabbath that's one thing I had uh, I'm discovering that you know the more and more that I make a stance about things the more and more people that were part of the show in the past don't want to be part of it so what do we do about that I don't know there's not much I can do about it um, um you know, I'm not asking them not to be on the show, but they don't want to be on the show because either it's my stance on the Sabbath or <laughs> something stupid is Revelation 13 or whatever it may be. It just seems like there's, this is the gig. This is how it goes. So, And um, I never wanted to be some like Keith Hansen anyways, like the Goth. I don't, I don't, I don't even compare to him, first of all. I can really give him the, the ability to lead a discussion. I really don't have that. And this has really just been a recording of my journey, so I'm not saying that I have all the answers. Hopefully I'm leading you to folks to do a better job than me. Um, 
And uh, but the thing is, you know, always be a little bit, always question, always question, prove it, prove it to yourself. Have the people or town use these things to prove to to you as well. Something's not satisfactory. So, and the people want to part ways because you don't agree with issues. Then I guess that's just part of life. Nothing's going to change. You know, it's amazing how religion, in the end of the day, makes so many of us self self righteous. And I imagine there's times when I sound that way and. Probably rightfully so, it could be accused of being self righteous. So, um, don't know what else. Hopefully, I'll change. Um, I'm sure I will. Religion and, and myself would never break out long very well, anyways. And uh, although I have faith in Jesus Christ, I don't have too much faith when it comes to men's religion. So. <laughs> and the more and more I learn about it, the more and more it's like, eh. And every time I hope, every time I think I found that church they belong to, there's just an avalanche of warning signs and red flags. And so, what what do you do? I don't know. I mean, I don't want to be judgmental about things, but it is what it is, folks. Things just aren't right in the world. Period. And we're going to learn more about that now by listening to other folks besides myself talk about it. So the first one, once again, is going to be um, the Committee of 300, as far as his connections in particular uh, that I'm interested in is uh, with the Beatles, of all things. <laughs> the band called the Beatles influenced us so much. How did they just end up showing up in our lives and becoming the bigger-than-life thing? Do you think it's coincidence, or do you think that this could have been something planned? I don't know. Let's find out. Check it out. All right. Um, enough of you have responded to uh, my skipping over the relationship between uh, the alleged relationship between Theodore Ordorno and the Beatles. So uh, you heard this uh, when I um, was reading The Conspiracy by John Wright, and I jumped over it. Now, um, there's also a mention of this in John Coleman's Conspirators Hierarchy, uh, the story of the Committee of 300. And uh, uh, I compared both uh, works, and I realized that Wright took what he used, it seems to me expressly from, John Coleman. So let me just skip and go to John Coleman. Now, the whole idea about this is, of course, we're shocked when we hear this. I mean, I remember when um, they were discussing Coleman in Peter Meyer's uh, email group. And, um, you know, they liked John Coleman's information, but then all of a sudden it got to the Beatles and Adorno. It was like, whoa, what's this? And that's where everybody starts to think, you know, maybe Coleman's wacky. And we never stop to think, well, maybe he's right. And we've been propagandized to believe that, uh, you know, John and Paul were like uh, Rogers and Hammerstein of uh, rock and roll. And and not saying that they weren't. I mean, it's, well, anyway, I'll go into some of that stuff later. Not much of it, but just what I recall. Uh, and um, so we're going to go to the, uh, the root of the information, which is Coleman. 
and um, this is this is what he said. He um, he has under notes and um, and um, I guess references. He has introduction to the socio- sociology of music by Adorno, Theo. Now that's a book that Adorno has authored. I'll give you some list of book well a list of books where you can find Matt Moore that that he's written. But uh, this was uh, Coleman's note. It said Adorno was kicked out of Germany by Hitler because of this cult of Dionysus music experiments. He was moved to England by the Oppenheimers where the British royal family gave him facilities at Gordonstown School uh, and their support. It was here that Adorno perfected Beatle music rock, punk rock, heavy metal rock, and all of the decadent clamor that passes from music today. It is worthy of note that the same, that the name, the Beatles, was chosen to, uh, to show a connection between modern rock the Isis cult, and the Scarab Beetle, a religious symbol of ancient Egypt. Uh, it did seem that um, Adorno, Adorno left Germany in the 30s. That would somewhat dovetail with what um, Coleman was writing. Right, now, this is from John Coleman. Okay, here we go. An outstanding example of social conditioning to accept change even when it is recognized as unwelcome change by the large population group in the sites of Stanford Research Institute was the advent of the Beatles. The Beatles were brought to the United States as part of a social experiment which would subject large population groups to brainwashing of which they were not even aware. When Tavistock brought the Beatles to the United States, nobody could have imagined the cultural disaster that was to follow in their wake. The Beatles were an integral part of the Aquarian conspiracy, a living organism which sprang from the changing images of man, and here is a code, U-R-H, in parentheses, 489-2150, policy research report number 4, slash 4, slash 74. Policy report prepared by the Stanford Research Institute Center for the Study of Social Policy, Director Professor Willis Harmon. The phenomenon of the Beatles was not a spontaneous rebellion by youth against the old social system. Instead, it was a carefully crafted plot to introduce by a conspiratorial body, which could not be identified, a highly destructive and divisive element into a large population group targeted for change against its will. New words and new phrases prepared by Tavistock were introduced to America along with the Beatles, words such as rock, in relation to music sounds, teenager, cool, discovered, and pop music, were a lexicon of disguised code words signifying the acceptance of drugs uh, and they arrived with and accompanied the Beatles wherever they went to be discovered by teenagers. Incidentally, the word teenagers was never used until just before the Beatles arrived on the scene, courtesy of the Tavistock Institute for Human Relations. He's right about the word teenager being invented by they, and the reason uh, why the term was invented, uh, and, it's, and in parentheses, he, he has divide and conquer. In other words, obviously what I'm taking from this is that he splits away teenagers and they become their own group and therefore an identity and they can, of course, be against the establishment, blah, blah, blah. Going on, uh, he's wrong about the time period, though. The concept of the teenager came about during the 1950s along with phrases such as cool, rock and roll, etc. Bill Haley and Elvis Presley came along long before the Beatles. And that would go back to the whole idea of rock and roll in, in general, which, of course, was... Uh, uh, which chagrined uh, most of America. Have you ever seen any of those old uh, film reels from 1950s, the newsreels and such, where you see uh, um, Hellfire and Brimstone preachers saying, you know, it's, it's from the devil, etc., etc.? Okay. Uh, 
As in the case of gang wars, nothing could or would have been accomplished without the cooperation of the media, especially the electronic media, and in particular, the scurrilous Ed Sullivan, who had been coached by the conspirators as to the role he was to play. Nobody would have paid much attention to the motley crew from Liverpool and the 12 atonal system of music that was to follow had it not been for an overabundance of press exposure. The 12 atonal system consisted of heavy repetitive sounds taken from the music of the cult of Dionysus and the Baal priesthood by Ordorno and given a modern flavor by the special friend of the Queen of England and hence the Committee of 300. Tavistock and his Stanford Research Center created trigger words which then came into general usage around rock music and its fans. Trigger words created um, a distinct new breakaway, largely young population group, which was persuaded by social engineering and conditioning to believe that the Beatles were really their favorite group. All trigger words devised in the context of rock music were designed for mass control of the new targeted group, the Youth of America. The Beatles did a perfect job, or perhaps it would be more correct to say that Tavistock and Stanford did a perfect job. The Beatles merely reacting like trained robots with a little help from their friends, cohorts for using drugs and making it cool. The Beatles became a highly visible new type, more Tavistock jargon, as such, uh, and as such, it was not long before the group made new styles, beds and clothing, beds and hairstyles and language usage, which upset the older generation as was intended. This was part of the fragmentation maladaption process worked out by Willis Harmon and his team of social scientists and genetic engineering tinkerers and put into action. The role of the print and electronic media in our society is crucial to the success of brainwashing large population groups. Gang wars ended in Los Angeles in 1966 as the media withdrew its coverage. The same thing will happen with, current, uh, with the current wave of gang wars in Los Angeles. Street gangs uh, will wither on the vine once media saturation coverage, coverage is toned down and then completely uh, withdraw. As in 1966, the issue would become burned out. Street gangs will have served their purpose of creating turbulence and insecurity. Exactly the same pattern will be followed in the case of rock music. Deprived of media attention, it will eventually take its place in history. Following the Beatles, who incidentally were put together by the Tavistock Institute, came other made-in-England rock groups who, like the Beatles, had Theo Adorno write their cult lyrics and compose all the music. I hate to use these beautiful words in the context of Beatlemania. It reminds me of how wrongly the word, word lover is used when referring to the filthy interaction between two homosexuals writhing in Pigswill. Oh, okay, John. To call, rock music, to call rock music is an insult, likewise the language used in rock lyrics. Tavistock and Stanford Research then embarked on the second phase of the work commissioned by the Committee of 300. This new phase turned up the heat for social change in America. As quickly as the Beatles had appeared on the American scene, so uh, too did the Beat Generation. Trigger words designed to separate and fragment society. The media now focused attention on the Beat Generation. Other Tavistock coined words came seemingly out of nowhere. Beatniks, hippies, flower children became part of the vocabulary of America. It became popular to drop out wear dirty jeans, go about with long, one unwashed hair. Uh, the Beat Generation cut itself off in the mainstream America. They became just as infamous as the cleaner Beatles before them. And I mean, now that's going to raise a play with everyone, and rightfully so. The Beat Generation preceded the hippies. The Beat Generation were what we knew as Beatniks, and whose head uh, at least was, um, in theory, uh, Jack Kerouac. Uh, clearly, the Beat Generation came before the hippies. Now, what did the, uh, how did the Beatles fit it all into that? Uh, probably bridging both. Uh, I never associated them with beatniks or the beat generation, and only later did I associate them with, uh, associate them with what you might call the, 
uh, the hippies because then, yeah, they grow their hair long. Uh, the music got to be a little bit more cosmic. So, um, but let's make it clear, certainly, that the beat generation uh, gave over the scepter to uh, the hippies. All right, now, the newly created group and its lifestyle swept millions of young Americans into the cult. American youth underwent a radical revolution without ever being aware of it, while the older generation stood by helplessly, unable to identify the source of the crisis, and thus reacting in a maladaptive manner against its manifestation, which were drugs of all types, marijuana and later lysergic acid, LSD, so conveniently provided for them by the Swiss pharmaceutical company Sandoz, following a discovery by one of its chemists, Albert Hoffman, how to make synthetic ergotamine, uh, um, a powerful mind-altering drug. The committee of 300 financed the project through one of their uh, banks, S.C. Warburg, and the drug was carried to America by the philosopher Aldous Huxley. And you want to take a look at the, um, the uh, logo for Sandoz, which is very interesting with this flower, very schematic drawing, okay? So you can, you can interpret it a number of ways. And I might still have it. I know I gave it to Farm Tech um, uh, down in Tennessee, uh, who has also slipped me. Or actually, she might have given it to me. Uh, but anyway, it's got this very uh, schematic-looking flower bent over, and from it drops a single droplet into what looks like, to me, the classic uh, cocktail uh, glass, you know, long-stemmed, kind of V-shaped uh, receptacle. Well, people used to drink, I guess, martinis, and, you know, it's, okay? You know, take a look at that. Do a, do a search on that. Very interesting. Yeah, Sandoz is a player, no doubt about it. All right, moving along with what uh, Coleman wrote in the conspirators' hierarchy. The new wonder drug was prop promptly distributed in sample-sized packages, hand out, handed out free of charge on college campuses across the United States and at rock concerts, which became the leading vehicle for proliferating the use of drugs. The question that cries out for an answer is, uh, what was the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA, doing at the time? There's compelling circumstantial evidence that that would appear to indicate that the DEA knew what was going on but was ordered not to take any action. I don't even know if the DEA was, um, and you can find this easily by just doing a search on this, I don't believe the DEA was around at the time. Not that that wasn't covered by something else, but one of the things I remember in my short brief stay with um, the FBI is a story that uh, Hoover wanted his agents to do nothing with drugs, have nothing to do with the drug trade, and therefore created the DEA to, to handle that. So back in the 60s, I doubt there was a DEA, but certainly uh, this drug was not known to anybody at the time, so I doubt law enforcement could do anything. And you can read about that in um, Tom Wolfe's uh, the, the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. I mean, this stuff was out there, and the cops didn't know anything about it. What are they going to do? It was not typed as a... Um, um, an illegal drug because nobody even knew it existed. So therefore it was leaked out without a doubt, and yet there was no laws on the books to do, with it, to do anything with it. The drug trade is controlled by the Committee of 300 from the top down. The drug, the drug trade started with the British East India Company and was closely followed by the Dutch East India Company. Both were controlled by a council of 300. The list of names of members and stockholders of the BEIC read something out uh, like of, out of um, De Brett's Peerage. BEIC established the China Inland Mission, whose job it was to get the uh, Chinese peasants or coolies, as they were called, addicted to opium. This created the market for opium, which the BEIC then filled. In much the same way, the Committee of 300 used the Beatles to popularize social drugs with the youth of America and the Hollywood in-crowd. 
Ed Sullivan was sent to England to become acquainted with the first Tavistock Institute rock group to hit the shores of the United States. Sullivan then returned to the United States to draft the strategy for the electronic media on how to package and sell the group. Without the full cooperation of the electronic media, and Ed Sullivan in particular, the Beatles and their music would have died on the vine. Instead, our national life and the character of the United States was forever changed. Uh, I'll say this much, uh, yes, they came with much ballet who never heard of the Beatles, and then there was this hype that they're coming, and they're coming, and they're coming, you know, the British invasion, which now is even funnier uh, to me, and I guess all of you also, knowing what we know now, uh, that this indeed was a soft invasion, uh, but nonetheless an invasion. And, of course, in, in back of the Beatles, for those of you who might be too young to, like, just, you know, get it out at, at your fingertips. I mean, we had the Hermit's Hermits. Uh, we had um, the Yardbirds. Uh, we had, um, geez, how many were there? Peter and Gordon, um, Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas, I think, or at least they, no, no, they, they did Beatles songs because McCartney and uh, Lennon had written for them as well. Um, the Mercy Monsters. I mean, there was a million of them. And, of course, the Stones of all things, and, and it goes on and on and on. So, yeah, they just came one after another after another. And... Um, at any rate, that was the British invasion. <clears throat> now that we know, uh, it is all too clear how successful the Beatles' campaign to proliferate the use of drugs became. The fact that the Beatles had their music and lyrics written for them by Theo Ordorno uh, was concealed from public view. The prime function to the Beatles was to be discovered by teenagers who uh, were then subjected to a nonstop barrage of Beatle music until they became convinced that they liked the sound and adopted it. Along with that, accompanied it. Uh, along with all that accompanied it. The Liverpool group performed up to expectations. With little help from their friends, that is, illegal substances we call drugs, create a whole new class to young Americans in the precise mold ordained by the Tavistock Institute. Tavistock had created a highly visible new type to act as their drug runners. The China Inland Mission Christian missionaries would not have fitted in with the 1960s. A new type is social science scientist jargon. What it meant was that the Beatles created new social patterns first and foremost being to normalize and popularize the use of drugs, new casing clothes and hairstyles, which really distinguished them from the old, older generation as was intended by Tavistock. The Beatles started to morph in about 19... This is me. The Beatles started to morph in about 1955, 1966. Uh, pretty much they were like, yeah, you know, they, you know I, I was a kid then. It was like music to hold hands by. It was like, I really like you, be my girlfriend, oh, you broke up with me, and you know, all this stuff. And then, so, then they slowly started to get into some more, um, or their first controversial music. Uh, the famous cover uh, photo of, I guess, the movie, uh, I'm sorry, the album, Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, with them in butcher coats, uh, with cleavers, and dismembered babies all around. And that later changed to what you see as it is today, with them sitting on, uh, I guess, travel trunks open and stuff like that. And then, of course, they did get into some music that would, would suggest that there was, you know, it was, it was drug-oriented. Uh, uh, I mean, when you look at Sgt. Pepper's, that, that to me is the first one, although they were going that way in, in a very steady and logical progression, even before that, um, with Revolver and stuff, and, Revolu and um, Rubber Soul before that. So they were going that way, and then, of course, it really did hit big uh, after 67, when they started getting even more in-depth as far as what could be considered somewhat drug-oriented, at least, you know, the music suggested as such uh, until their, uh, their demise. Well, a lot of the other groups, if not all of them, just stayed away from that. A lot of them died out because, you know, we, we, we consider a lot of that music bubblegum, uh, innocuous, if you will, and uh, they did not necessarily follow the Beatles' lead uh, as far as the groups from, uh, from uh, England. And even 
for the most part, the Stones didn't even get involved with that. I mean, they did what Ruby Tuesday, which was kind of like, you know, Beatlesque in the sense of, uh, of, of uh, all the techniques that they use for the music, and somewhat, you know, kind of, you know, Bird Spells, Incense, Light Show, Woodstock kind of stuff. So the Beatles didn't start out pushing that necessarily, but they did get a lot of kids in the days when they were, you know, wearing uh, crew cuts and loafers and stuff like that, and then brought them to the point where their hair was down to their uh, tailbone and uh, wearing tie-dyed shirts and ripped jeans. That's my two cents. Uh, it is important to note that the deliberate fragmentation-inducing lang language used by Tavistock, uh, the teenagers never once dreamed that all the different things they aspired to were a product of older scientists working in think tanks in England and Stanford Research Institute. How mortified they would have been if they had discovered that most of their cool habits and expressions were deliberately created for their use by a group of older social science scientists. The role of the media was and remains very important in promoting the use of drugs on a nationwide scale. Uh, when coverage of the street warfare gangs was abruptly terminated by the media, they became burned out as a social phenomenon. The new age of drugs followed. The media was also, uh, has always served as a catalyst and has always pushed new causes. And now media attention was focused on drug usage and its supporters. The beat generation, yet another phrase, fashioned at Tavistock in its determined efforts to bring about social changes in the United States. Uh, I'll say one thing about gang warfare at this time so I don't forget it because I'm not going to remember all this stuff at the end. And that is they were, the, the major gang warfare took place in the 1950s and was really a problem. And as a kid growing up uh, right across the river, in what can still be considered the New Jersey section of the New York metropolitan area, uh, it, uh, New York was rife with gangs. In fact, one of the most infamous incidents was committed by, I think they could call them the Batman, somebody who kind of like dressed up vampire-like and just uh, slit somebody to death for no good reason that in Hell's Kitchen, which is on the west side of New York. And I believe he's still in prison to this day, an extremely intelligent individual. But here you go. You know, random violence, senseless violence, was the result of the gangs. Uh, nothing really happened in Jersey until probably around 1962, uh, when West Side Story made its run through all the theaters. And all of a sudden, aping what they saw on TV in my very own town, which really was pretty homogeneic. Uh, we had uh, all Anglo, uh, all Catholic for the most part, uh, some Protestants, some Jews, uh, but uh, either Irish or Catholic for the most part, and I didn't fit anywhere because I was a Scandinavian. But the thing was, it was really nothing to fight about. So what happened was, for whatever cause, um, all of a sudden we had the Sharks and the Jets, and people's loyalties went to both, and, and some assumed the names. They had to fight for the names like Riff and you know, Ice Boy and all stuff. And we had this ridiculous summer of stupid fights and people chasing each other. I should really write a, a story about that because uh, playing ball, we were in a schoolyard, which was kind of like a crossroads. And it got to the point where all of us that were playing stickball or whatever it was we wanted to play, uh, when these guys would come through saying, did you see the sharks? And we'd go, yeah, yeah, the sharks went off that way. And, of course, they didn't, so the, <laughs> the jets followed them that way. And then the, the sharks would come and go, do you see the jets? And i go, yeah, they went that way. And, of course, it was the other way. From, you know, and it was just it was hilarious. It was. Um, yeah, I gotta, one day I've got to talk about that and how it finally came to an end with this unbelievable spectacle of uh, two champions, one from the Jets and the Sharks, uh, you know, bare-knuckling it at Lindbergh School Field. And uh, it was hilarious, but anything. Yeah, gangs, gangs uh, came on the scene. I remember reading about them in the New York dailies. And then slowly they just faded away. And probably by the time, you know, they were pretty big in 1958, somewhere around, you know, 60 to 62, they faded away, and it wasn't even a thought, you know. And 
So again, you know, where do these waves of fads come from? Are they foisted upon us? All right, here we go back to Coleman's work. The descendants of the British East India Company were delighted with the success of their drug-pushing program. Their disciples became adept in the use of lysergic acid, so conveniently made available by patients of the drug trade, like Aldous Huxley, courtesy of the highly respected Sandoz Company in Switzerland and financed by the great Warburg uh, banking dynasty. The new wonder drug was uh, promptly distributed at all rock concerts, and on college campuses in free packages. The question that begs to be asked for is what was the FBI doing while all this was going on? Even though this is a little bit redundant, I have to tell you that this is excerpted from different sections of Coleman's book so that, you know, this wasn't continuous in a sense. It, it popped up a second time. So when you hear this referred to and you're saying, well, he just wrote that, well, he kind of did, but this comes like 100 pages later. Um, and here he talks about the FBI, which is probably – the ones that would have been handling this to a certain degree at that time. I can't remember, obviously, but certainly I do not remember DEA on the scene uh, back in the 60s. I also want to tell you a quick story, if I could. Uh, the Renaissance landscaper, whom I refer to often as, uh, when I think back to conversations we had and actually stuff we talked about long before, you know, I'm thinking the way I am now, and I don't even know if he's thinking the way I am now, though I think, uh, you know, if I ever contacted him, he might. Um, he was a Rutgers uh, graduate, um, was in your, uh, was it the Mensa group or whatever? Yeah, uh, he and his brother was uh, a lawyer. Um, but anyway, when uh, the Renaissance landscaper, the RL, was down in uh, Rutgers, uh, he and some of his cohorts uh, in science class were uh, trying to develop LSD on a piece of uh, wheat bread. But the problem was, if I guess, and of course I am not scientific in any rate, but from what he told me, the difference between LSD and killer wheat rust was like, you know, a molecule or something. And anyway, when the time came and they went to visit their piece of uh, uh, wheat bread, whole wheat bread, they knew the time had come and they were like sitting there sweating, deciding, well, should we take a hit on this, knowing that we might get killed? And they decided, nah, forget it. So they, they threw their experiment in the wastebasket and never visited it again. Now, we'll never know if they had LSD or killer wheat rust. The purpose of the Beatles have become abundantly clear. The British East India Company's descendants in the upper-class society in London must have felt very good about the billions of dollars that began rolling in. With the coming of rock, which, will, uh, which shall henceforth be used as shorthand to describe Adorno's fiendish satanic music, a tremendous increase uh, in the use of social drugs, especially marijuana, was observed. The entire dope business was expanded under the control and direction of the Science Policy Research Unit, SPRU, run by Leland Bradford, Kenneth Dam, and Ronald Lippert, under whose expert guidance a large number of new science scientists were trained to promote future shocks, one of the chief being the dramatic increase in the use of drugs by America's teenagers. SPRU's policy papers, planted in various government agencies, including the Drug Enforcement Agency, dictated the course of the disastrous drug war allegedly waged by the Reagan and Bush administrations. This was the forerunner of how the United States is run today, by one committee and or council after another, by an intergovernment fed on Tavistock papers, which they firmly believe are their own opinions. These virtual unknowns are making decisions that will forever change our form of government and the quality of life here in the United States. Through crisis adaptation, we have already been changed so much as to barely compare with what we were in the 1950s. Now, again, uh, that was not satisfying with regard to Adorno. All I can do is add to this, and I'll, I'll send you on your way if you're interested in, in checking this out further. 
I think what I'm going to impart to you right now is only something that I did on a search myself, but it'll give you an idea too of, of if you want to um, uh, pursue this further. I will say from what I can see, or Adorno was no just average guy. I mean, we're not talking about some uh, um, innocuous composer. Um, there is a website, a Kentucky EDU website. If you do a search on um, the uh, Adorno's book, Introduction to the Sociology of Music, um, and I think I got that right. Let me see if that's, um, that is, in fact, correct. Yeah, Introduction to the, Soci uh, to the Sociology of Music, uh, Theo Adorno. Uh, and this is what we get from um, an individual by the name of Larry Nelson, uh, who writes this. Adorno's initial definition of the sociology of music is, quote, knowledge of the relation between music and the socially organized individuals who listen to it. Later, he suggests that a finished musical sociology should take its bearings from the, from the social structures that leave their imprint on music and on what we call musical life in the most general sense. He is interested in, among other things, the relation between productive forces and circumstances of production. In the realm of music, productive forces can refer to. And uh, I haven't listed what that is. Now, another paragraph, it says, although Adorno suggests that in the 19th century, it was still possible to write decent popular music, he views the production of popular music after the early 20th century as completely uh, dissociated from and perhaps even antithetical to serious music. He states um, that if the concept of decay, which cultural Philistines love to cite against modern work, is justified anywhere it is in popular music, although the tone of his writing seems to indicate contempt for those who consume popular music, he states that the people kept out of the cultural establishment. Uh, well, let me say that again. The people kept out of the cultural establishment by economic and psychological pressures were fobbed off with specially prepared stimuli. I mean, that's a pretty heavy paragraph, because when we talk about Adorno uh, possibly being behind the Beatles, he shows contempt for what's going on today, but that doesn't mean he couldn't promote it. And maybe, in fact, because he got away with it, he looked at it with some kind of uh, um, some noxiousness. Uh, so, and even in this paragraph, as this uh, Larry Nelson has pointed out, you know, he, he makes a statement, but then it's kind of like a butt statement right after it. This guy is just not a regular guy, which would lead some credence to the fact that he might have been a shaker in whatever kind of psyops were being used uh, to obviously manipulate people like myself in a few years before and after me. So uh, there's something going on there. Now, on another site uh, that is uh, kept up by a Moya K. Mason, and I just emailed her using my stleo.edu uh, email address, which I cleverly keep updated. It's because you're going to get, you know, obviously I'm going to get more responses to that, you know, to keith.hanson at stleo.edu, there I sit down and said it, than I will get with Visigoth, I mean, obviously. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why I had sometimes a lot better uh, success with getting guests on because I used stleo.edu. They thought I was a prof, you know, so. Anyway, so I did email her to ask her if she had any kind of information that chronicled a relationship or a passing, if nothing else, between Adorno, perhaps George Martin, and or the Beatles. We'll see what happens. Okay, uh, so if you go to this website, and I'll tell you what, for both these links, if you want them, I'll send them to you. Or, now you know what, I'll put them up. Since I'm doing this on Saturday, you folks will see it no, uh, no later, uh, no earlier than June 4th and through that week. You'll see two links if you want to go. But if you do your search yourself, 
we'll come up with this stuff. And I just want to refer to uh, something that she cited uh, from a book called The Dialectical Imagination. And, of course, the word dialectical is not ever lost on any of us. Interesting again. So the, the Dialectical Imagination uh, by Martin Jay, and here's the uh, excerpt. Adorno believed autonomous artistic com compositions were the pressures of society's utopian possibilities and the last holdout for humanity's desire for a better world, a world which he saw to be immersed in social contradictions. Unless these contradictions were harmonized, music and the other arts must confine to reflect elements of social protest. Adorno also admitted that music itself contained contradictions in its own structure, since it could never be completely autonomous nor fully reflective of culture. What distressed him more was autonomous music being severely threatened by commodification, displaying considerably more features of an exchange value philosophy. He contended that his criticisms of popular music were not based on elitist comparisons with traditionally, quote, serious music, but rather that the real dichotomy was between music that was completely market-driven and music that was not. And in that paragraph doesn't pique your interest. I don't know what will. Um, so <laughs> consider the fact, folks, that it may very well have been that there was something behind McCartney and Lennon, especially with the Beatles. Uh, and before I give you this uh, bibliography, a bunch of books that Ordono has written, uh, I had said this before and I didn't hear it. The only thing I remember growing up, uh, and in Rolling Stone, in fact, and with these reminiscences, and I, yeah, they were after the fact, yeah, definitely, uh, by George Martin, who's an excellent, just an excellent speaker and intelligent guy. And Martin had said that in the first few albums by the Beatles, which would be what? Introducing the Beatles, Meet the Beatles. Um, there was another one in there, too, and I'm not going to worry about remembering it. You will find, really, uh, an abundance of covers they did on blues, rock and roll classics. I mean, if you listen to uh, the second album, for instance, you know, Roll Over Beethoven, you really got a hold on me, Chains, you know, I mean, Money. This stuff was not original compositions, and Martin told him, hey, get on a stick, you guys are going to have to do your own stuff. So you got to wonder if, in fact, while they first started, and being, shall we say, groomed, it was easy for them to do these covers uh, of other songs, in the meantime, perhaps getting up on their feet to become what I believe they actually became in the end. Now, Alan Watts speaks to this, and he said that uh, with Alan being a, a musician, that these guys couldn't have composed some of the stuff they did at the age they were, unless I guess they were completely, uh, you know, savants or whatever. I don't know. That's out of my league, uh, but there is some indication that they were not very original in the beginning, and that might have lasted for perhaps, you know, two years or so. If something was going on, there's no doubt about it. The other thing is, you know, was John Lennon killed for a certain reason? Uh, he was murdered, no doubt about it. Uh, some would say, uh, and adamantly so, that it was not, what's his face? Um, was that Chapman? Yeah, that, it, that Chapman was there. But again, you're Patsy, like a Sirhan Sirhan. And then he was shot by someone else. Now, was he getting ready to talk? Obviously, in 1980, right around that time, um, uh, late 1980, he died. I guess he was shot in October. I believe it was October. Um, October, November 9th. I know it was, I remember it was Monday Night Football. I was watching and they broke in and said, John Lennon has just been shot. So that was something. And I was on the phone with somebody from uh, Vermont who had not got it yet on his uh, TV and going, holy mackerel, Every, you're never going to believe what happened. So anyway, if he was uh, assassinated, why? Why Why kill him? Uh, and also, obviously, 
there were three left. Nobody, nobody to this day has ever said anything about their early beginnings. Harrison, you know, was set upon to be murdered. Obviously, it didn't work out, but now he's dead. You've got McCartney and Starr left. I don't know that Ringo would say anything. And McCartney, I do not trust, and I just wonder sometimes about that whole situation. So, uh, obviously, you know that there was a connection between rock and roll and uh, psyops. Uh, Alex Constantine did some great stuff on that, which I don't think you can find anymore on the net. Um, I have his email. Apparently, he likes to lay low. Um, when I was talking to Nico Hop late last year, uh, it seemed that um, he just wanted to be left alone. Something was going on there. I don't know. But he, he did a great job about uh, uh, the connection between uh, perhaps the military uh, and the powers that be in rock and roll. And certainly, we know that we have been um, manipulated, which made me think back now, too, to what Kesey was doing, obviously, out at Stanford. Uh, I think he was in graduate school at the time, and there's Stanford Research Institute. He goes off uh, with a school bus and loaded with acid, and now you got to wonder if Kesey was, uh, you know, completely on our side of the street. And it goes on and on and on. So we won't uh, speculate any more about that. But uh, some books by Theodore Adorno. Uh, Alan Berg is the title, translated by Julianne Brand and Chris Haley, Cambridge University Press, 1991 release. Uh, Introduction to the Sociology of Music, translated by E.B. Ashton, uh, Seabury Press. This is 1976. 1982 publishing date, On the Fetish Character in Music and the Regression of Listening in the Essential Frankfurt School Reader. Edited by Andrew Arado and uh, Ike Gebhardt, the Continuum Publishing Company. 1973, Philosophy of Modern Music, translated by Ann G. Mitchell and Wesley D. Bomster, the Seabury Press. And the last one that was listed under uh, Miss Mason's uh, article was Prisons, translated by Samuel and Sherry Weber, uh, MIT Press. That's interesting. So there you have it. We'll close it right there, probably raise more questions than it uh, gives answers. And I don't know that we'll ever know. Um, but the thing is, we do know this now, at least I would hope from what I kind of um, prime the pump with, and that is there is something with Adorno. And maybe I should talk to Alan about that now, having gone into this. Uh, so I hope uh, it's been worth your 36 sec- uh, minutes here to listen to, um, and that'll close it out as far as what John Wright in The Conspiracy and what John Coleman in The Conspirators Hierarchy have written about regarding the Beatles and Theodore Adorno. <laughs> We have with us again today, after having done a pre-record, we have Dave McGowan with us. Well, welcome back to another segment of Beyond the Grassy Knoll, and we have with us today Dave McGowan. He's been on before, um, but this uh, theme to which he's going to speak is much different than the last uh, he shared with us uh, back probably over a year ago. Um, he's, uh, he has really gotten a lot of attention out of folks uh, with this last series about which we will speak, and it's entitled, By Dave, Inside the L.C., 
the strange but mostly true story of Laurel Canyon and the birth of the hippie generation. And uh, I, I won't tell you I had a ringside seat for that. I was on a, I was on a field playing day. <laughs> so, welcome to the Grassy Knoll, and thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me on. It's good to be back. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been, and thanks for coming. And hopefully we can do a couple of shows with this, because just as you've said yourself, this topic, um, it is it is a labyrinthine. I mean, it, it just goes all over the place. And uh, we've had that kind of same feeling with Adam Rightly and Amy Colvin with what they've covered. It is absolutely fascinating, and um, you think it's over, and it's not over by any means. And that's exactly what you're dealing with right now. Now, the series... It's just four parts long, but <laughs> what would you uh, what would you uh, guess might be a ballpark number of um, parts that this could turn out to be? I'm guessing probably a dozen at this point, but uh, it's I mean it's it's a, it's a it's very much a work in progress. I'm still actively doing research and still updating my notes, and I mean I just have tons and just pages and pages and pages of raw raw notes that I somehow or other have to uh, try to shape into the remainder of this story. Um, it, it's hard to say at this point, but I, I would guess that it'll probably run at least 12 installments. Now, pardon the pun, but would you consider Laurel Canyon the epicenter of something? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was definitely the epicenter of something. Exactly what, I don't know. And, uh, which I got to say came as quite a surprise to me, actually, because, uh, I don't know if you know this, but I, I live, I could, I could jump and walk out the door right now and get in my car and be in the very heart of Laurel Canyon in like 15 minutes from my front door. And I've, I've lived within a half an hour of it my entire life here in the L.A. area. And, you know, I've actively been researching this kind of stuff for, uh, I don't know, a good 10, 15 years. And yet I knew nothing about this place or the significance of it uh, up until like a year or two ago. I knew absolutely nothing about it. And yet uh, here it is right in my own backyard and uh, completely unknown to me and to just about everybody else in the uh, in the uh, quote unquote conspiracy community it's it's known to some degree to uh, you know people that are real hardcore uh, you know rock and roll aficionados that, that really followed this stuff through the 60s and, and whatnot but uh, the the importance of it is no it's not is not generally known at all um, yeah I, I literally I drive through I've been driving through it all my life. Uh, to get to work from it's a it's an easy way to get from the valley into the the west side of LA you know either Laurel Canyon Coldwater and and whatnot and uh, you know I've been driving through it off and on my whole life and yet never never had a had a clue that that, that there was any special significance or any special history that this place had. Let me just ask you uh, with uh, let's see using the Hollywood Bowl as a reference point. Where is uh, Laurel Canyon in reference to that? Uh, for the Hollywood Bowl? Yeah, anywhere near it? Uh, kind of, sort of. It actually it sits right above the Sunset Strip, what is known as the Sunset Strip, which is the section of Sunset Boulevard that used to be sort of an unincorporated strip that was like speakeasies and brothels and whatnot, and then later became this big club scene. But uh, it sits basically right above, uh, like, uh, West Hollywood, West 
to like Studio City, North Hollywood area. It's it's um, it's fairly close to the Hollywood sign. It's probably like a few miles west of the of the Hollywood sign. It's kind of hard to <laughs> to describe to people that aren't familiar with the layout of uh, of, the, of the city of L.A. and the San Fernando Valley and whatnot. But uh, I just spent some time uh, with a first cousin of mine back in like '75. He was a screenwriter at that time, and uh, he was living on Highland Avenue, which branched off whatever that whatever the road is on which the Hollywood Bowl sits. And um, I've, I've forgotten the name of it, but he was up in the hill someplace on the east side, away from uh, the Hollywood Bowl. But, um, you know, that's, that's all I re remember of L.A. And actually, I remember very little what I did out there, thankfully. So uh, that, the Hollywood Bowl, I think it sits in the Coanga Pass, I believe, doesn't it? Which is where the 101 freeway uh, cuts through. And then... Uh, yeah, so it's it's uh it's not far. It's not too far from there. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, I don't know. <laughs> no, there was just a lot of topography there, and, and was in the hills. And I was wondering when I was uh, although there is a map, kind of a map uh, that's associated. Well, you have it built in one of your articles about the layout of uh, Laurel Canyon. But uh, when did what, what, what for folks who aren't that familiar with it, Laurel Canyon? Well, how would you how would you define it? Uh, and uh, uh, to what era would you say it's best associated? It is, how would I describe it? It's, uh, it's a very sort of secluded, uh, sort of exclusive, almost self-contained sort of neighborhood. It's not actually a city at all. It, it's, it's a, uh, a, a sub community, yeah. I guess you could say, uh, sort of a self-contained community up in the Hollywood Hills that's fairly secluded in, in that there's really only one road into there, which is Laurel Canyon Boulevard, which cuts through. Um, and Laurel Canyon Boulevard actually carries quite a bit of traffic these days because it's, like I said, it's, a, it's an easy way to, to uh, cut through directly from the valley to the, to the west side. But if you get off of Laurel Canyon Boulevard into in, onto any of the little... Uh, in a little winding uh, side streets that branch off of it, they're they're mostly all they're pretty much all dead end roads. So once you once you know there's really there's only one way in, and then you're just sort of in this maze of uh, winding roads that go nowhere. So once you get in actually into the canyon, it's very very kind of secluded and very self-contained. It has its own uh, little grocery store and its own little boutique shops and, and uh, various things like that. It has its own elementary school. At one time, it even had its own newspaper, which is where that map came from back in the olden days. So it's this sort of it's 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 almost. I mean, you go up there and it's all. You, you feel like you're not even really in LA anymore. I mean, you're you're up there in in this very wood, heavily wooded, very rustic, serene uh, sort of you know mountain setting, you know, sort of a country setting, and uh, it's very easy to forget that you're actually in the city of LA. Although you have you have great views down onto the uh, you know commoners down below from up there. But once you get up there, it, it's just, it just seems so far removed from the city itself. I mean, it's like you, it's almost like you, you, you've jumped on a plane and, and uh, you know, gone to somewhere, some remote location because it, 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 uh, it has its own, its own unique, distinct feel that's separate from, uh, you know, the city itself. Well, now, I had asked you to what era uh, that, um, 
areas most associated with. That's really not a fair question because that place has always been the place to be, so to speak, uh, from the 20s with, with um, uh, I guess, uh, Hollywood uh, film starlets and such, uh, right yeah. up through the 60s and 70s, which you deal the most with. But isn't that the reason why, too, that it is a self-contained place? You don't drive through Laurel Canyon. If you're going in there, you're going in there to see somebody. you got business. There's no drive-through. And if those people don't want to come out for whatever reason, they really don't have to. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it, it, the, the, the Laurel Canyon grew up with the film industry. They, it, it was, uh, it was developed in conjunction with the, you know, the onset of the, uh, the movie industry. And from the very beginning, that was one of the main, uh, you know, the, the people that, that flocked to the canyon were a lot of the, the early movie stars who could, uh, you know, get up and, and, you know, have sort of privacy and seclusion. You know, you're out, you're out. Pretty much, you know, in the boonies is the, is the feel of it. When you're up there, you feel very far removed from from the city, and so it had a it definitely had an attraction for the movie people who wanted, you know, the the privacy and and the uh, you know to to get away from it all, so to speak. So yeah, it's always been a uh, it's always been a favorite place for the Hollywood crowd ever since its, its earliest development back in you know like 1913 is when when development really first began on it, and uh, right from the beginning, I mean, the, some of the earliest residents were like Tom Mix, Harry Houdini, Wally Reed, uh, you know, all these big names, Ramon Navarro, these big, uh, you know, the big Hollywood icons of that day, and it's been like that ever since. I mean, if you look at you know, every decade since then, you know, you've had people like W.C. Fields and, and uh, Robert Mitchum, and, you know, in the 50s, you had all these these young, uh, you know, the the young stars like James Dean and uh, Natalie Wood and Dennis Hopper and Selminio and yeah, it's 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 been a it's been an exclusive sort of you know very very upscale uh, retreat you know for for people with with money, uh, including the Hollywood crowd, you know, since since its uh, since its inception. Uh, and you really. You do provide a bit of a history, just as you've given us now in that series, but you deal with it uh, mainly as uh, some kind of really epicenter for the 60s and 70s uh, rock and roll uh, scene. That's, yeah, that's when it really, uh, I mean, that was kind of Laurel Canyon's heyday, yeah, from uh, like the, say, uh, mid-60s, from like around 1965 through the late 70s up until almost like till 1980. It was just this, uh, yeah, just this a huge epicenter of uh, of uh, music, of, of this, this new, uh, you know, the, the new uh, 60s uh, brand of uh, rock and roll music, beginning with uh, The Birds and Buffalo Springfield and The Turtles and The Mother's Invention, The Doors, Love, The Mamas and the Papas, and then uh, from there, which I haven't gotten to in the series yet, but from there, uh, following that, that that first big, you know, uh, batch of bands that came out of there, then it kind of shifted over to like a, a singer-songwriter kind of thing, and you had uh, James Taylor and uh, Joni Mitchell, uh, Judy Collins, Carole King, uh, Jackson Brown, and then... From there, then the next sort of wave was all these like uh, country rock uh, 
country rock sort of people like uh, America and uh, Flying Burrito Brothers and Poco and uh, the Eagles and it's just it's an amazing list if you look at the, the complete list of all of the singers and songwriters and musicians that, that uh, emerged from that canyon over like a 10 year period it's just it's, it's staggering I mean it's just it's it's unbelievable how many people came out of this this very small, very isolated little canyon community over the you know beginning in the uh, in the mid '60s and, and onward. Uh, there didn't happen to necessarily be anything there of this uh, sort. I, I'm going to assume that the, there are no recording studios there, but that place is a hop, skip, and a jump from from um, I would assume a lecture asylum and some other recording uh, studios. Yeah, it's just uh, it's just above the uh, the sun yeah the Sunset Strip and, and uh, yeah it, it, but they there wasn't a there wasn't a huge amount of uh, recording studios and whatnot before the the big influx of bands they actually kind of in, in a big way they kind of created the the LA music scene and made it what it is today made LA the epicenter of the. Uh, of the music world, that's one point that I made in the in the series is that they they weren't coming here because this was the you know the mecca for musicians. They they made it that the music and, right. Uh, all of these these uh you know Asylum Records was actually started here by David Geffen. He right. signed up a lot of these people and uh, you know some a lot of these 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 record companies. They they were mostly based in New York at the time, and some of them didn't even have West Coast representatives when this whole scene started to break, and they had this kind of, you know, get people out here to start signing up all these bands. Uh, but yeah, there's there's uh, you know there was there was some you know there was to some degree there was recording studios and whatnot, but these, these bands really really kind of made made the scene what it is today and a lot of them actually built their own recording studios you know Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys built his own John Phillips built his own Frank Zappa you know a lot of these guys built their own uh, home studios Mike Nesmith of the Monkees built his own and so yeah they uh they really transformed the whole LA music and in the whole music industry in general cuz i mean some of the the albums and it ended up coming out of Laurel Canyon. Just, just I mean, they they sold they sold so many copies and they just they just completely trans. They were, it was kind of the beginning of the whole corporatization of the uh, of the music industry with these just huge monster albums that came out, like you know Carol King's Tapestry and the, the Eagles Hotel California and. Uh, Fleetwood Max rumors and just you know these this huge 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 monster albums that completely redefined what what a hit record was and you know um, so yeah it was it was the, the the music industry in LA really grew up around uh, all of these bands but there was some facilities uh, to begin with but but uh, it was more a case that they went ahead and made it the scene and then the industry followed the scene pretty much so yeah yeah because before that uh yeah before that the, the music scene was basically centered in nashville new york and uh i'm drawing a blank there's uh memphis i 
think it was. Oh, with Sun Records. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and yeah, and, and LA was just sort of a real uh, a minor player, you know. LA had the had the was the movie, you know. They had the the, the Hollywood, they had the motion picture uh, industry pretty much centered here, but the music industry really wasn't until uh, until like the late '60s. I just read the other day that the like prior to that, like in 1963 or something, of the the number one songs. Of the songs that hit number one, and uh, for that year, like something like 26 of them came out of New York, and like three of them came out of L.A. And uh, within like a few years, those those numbers had like completely reversed, and L.A. had become become by far the dominant, uh, you know, music producer, the music capital of the of the country of the world, pretty much. It also seemed to me that um, one of the places to be seen out there as well, or at least the perform. Uh, a, a club, I guess, that comes up time and time again is the Troubadour. Uh, yeah, Doug West's Troubadour, yeah, the Whiskey A Go-Go, uh, the London Fox, Pandora's Box, uh, Ciro's, there was a whole... whole the Losers Club. Yeah, the Troubadour was one of the big ones. That was the... The Troubadours really were the whole country... The whole country rock uh, mm-hmm. that got started, beginning with Graham Parsons and uh, his Blind Burrito Brothers and uh, Poco, which was... Uh, kind of an offshoot of uh, Buffalo Springfield and, you know, carrying through to the Eagles who made it this huge, you know, commercial force that it was. Uh, basically what the Eagles did was take this pioneering work uh, done by Graham Parsons and Chris Hillman and others and uh, turned it into this big, you know, commercial uh, huge corporate, <laughs> a huge corporate entity that it now is. Yeah, uh, in fact, I still remember that there was kind of a protege that was going on where the Eagles protege Jackson Brown and Jackson Brown protege Warren Zevon, you know, and in this thing, I want to tell you also, in um, this is very reminiscent of the liner notes that I read in um, The Best of Carla Bonoff when she breaks down how things are going out there. And she was involved with a lot of those same personages and, of course, all the main players, if you remember, from the electoral asylum, I guess you would call a stable uh, performers like Kenny Edwards, you know, and Russ Punkel and Andrew Gold and all them. And, uh, and, and she reminisces about having a 200 buck a month flat out in uh, uh, San Fernando Valley. So, but uh, in those liner notes, she talks a lot about the same things that you're speaking to also about how things were back in those days. But there's also something else that's kind of curious uh, as far as commonalities go. Uh, with rock and roll, uh, with Laurel Canyon, and also with a lot of these stars, rock and roll stars having been um, sired by by family members, a spouse or so, uh, that was in the military intelligence complex. Yeah, to an uh, uncanny degree. Uh, yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot of them that, that uh, yeah, there's a... There's, uh, yeah, a lot of sons and daughters of the uh, military intelligence complex running around, and a lot of sons and daughters of uh, families that uh, have an incredible amount of wealth and political power as well. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, can we uh, ding off a couple of these on the list here, if you don't mind? Sure. Uh, where do we start? Well, or- yeah, I was going to say with Jim Morrison, who you know, who nobody would associate with being the prodigy of uh, you know some heavy military folks. In this case, his father was um, a big naval guy, was he not? 
Yes, he was, and yeah, that, that's that's one of the ones that seems to uh, just seems to shock a lot of people. I've gotten more 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 uh, more responses concerning Morrison than anyone else. He has some very rabid fans who are uh, <laughs> found and determined to defend their man, which you know I can kind of understand. But yeah, Jim Morrison was the uh, son of a U.S. Naval Admiral, and not just any U.S. Naval Admiral, but the one who was actually in command of the fleet of ships that was involved in the so-called Tonkin Gulf uh, incident, where two of our ships supposedly came under attack from uh, North Vietnamese forces, but later it was basically acknowledged that it never even happened, that they, they basically made the whole thing up and use that as the pretext to greatly escalate the war. Immediately immediately following that, of course, was the, the Tonkin Gulf Resolution, which gave the president you know, pretty much unlimited powers to wage war. And right after that, we began massive bombing campaigns that didn't stop for years. And we immediately, we almost immediately began shipping the first uniformed uh, ground troops over there. And within within a year, of that incident, we had uh, 200,000 200, men already uh, over there in country. More, more in, in one year than, than we've than we've built up in uh, over in the Middle East in you know five or six years or however long that nightmare's been going on. So there was just a huge, massive escalation of the war that occurred right after this incident. And uh, the guy that was in command of those ships at that time was Jim Morrison's dad, of all people. Yeah, very odd. Very small world that, that uh, at the very time that the father's over there, you know, uh, working to create this pretext for a you know full-scale American uh, immersion into that war the sons over here positioning himself to become this huge icon of the anti-war movement <laughs> very odd and yet and he never mentioned never mentioned throughout his career in fact he, he was fond of telling uh, Telling reporters that uh, his, his his parents were dead, that his family was dead, and which a lot of people have written to me to tell me, you know, they say, well, you say that you know Jim Morrison never spoke out about his parents, but he used to tell interviewers that he was dead, and the reason that he did that was because he felt that they were dead to him, symbolically they were dead to him, and he wanted nothing to do with them. And meanwhile, I'm saying, well, then how come he was sitting on the bridge of his dad's ship, <laughs> you know, one year before his band came out? And, and you know, and, and have you ever considered that maybe he did that because that was a very convenient way to avoid talking about who his dad really was? You know, if you don't want to talk about who your dad was, you tell people that he's dead, and you don't have to talk about it, right? So, uh yeah, I, I, I don't, uh, you know, I know it upsets a lot of people, but uh, I just, uh, I don't know. And I was a huge Doors fan. I still am to some degree, but it's, uh, I listen to the music in a little different way now, I guess. Um, it's just, I don't know, it's, it's tainted in a way to me now, you know. Uh, yeah, I understand completely, uh, and I'll, I'll try to get back to the uh, to the point of um, what this really says about who these people might really have been. Uh, and um, 
and how much of a coincidence this all is, because the next character of um, renown uh, that fits into this um, paradigm is uh, Frank Zappa. Yeah, Frank Zappa was a hugely influential character in uh, Laurel Cabin for a while. He sat and he occupied the, uh, the sort of what was sort of a communal house throughout the uh, mid to late 60s, which was Tom Mix's old log cabin, uh, which despite the name is not like uh, what you'd expect a log cabin to be. It was actually this huge, massive, five-level uh, former roadhouse slash tavern, and uh, which he uh, holed up in for a while. And that, that was sort of the major gathering spot for Laurel Canyon royalty. I mean, anybody who was anyone stopped by the log cabin. And uh, even though his band was never hugely commercially successful, he was very influential among his peers. And he started up his own record labels and signed up a lot of the bands. You know, a lot of people probably don't realize that he's the one that signed Alice Cooper and, and launched his career and, and uh, you know, some other people as well. So he, he, was a, he was a very influential character in the canyon. And uh, his dad was actually a chemist at the Edgewood Arsenal doing uh, chemical warfare research. He actually lived there for like the first seven years of his life. He lived in uh, military housing on the grounds of the Edgewood Arsenal and attended the uh, Edgewood School. So he was a, a product of the Edgewood Arsenal of all places. <laughs> now wait, is, is Edgewood Arsenal, is that the one in Maryland? Yeah, okay. yeah, outside of Baltimore. Yep, yeah, it's right. a very infamous facility. Uh, it's, you know, the, it's been the home of uh, U.S. chemical warfare research for decades and decades, and it also comes up rather frequently in like the MK Ultra research. It's been, been linked uh, repeatedly to various, you know, projects and sub-projects of the uh, quote-unquote MKUltra program. So, yeah, I mean, anybody that's done any conspiracy research at all is pretty much knows, is familiar with, with the Edgewood Arsenal. So when you hear that the, the, the huge figure in the, in, the, in the music community at that time was a, a direct product of that facility, that's, that's, that definitely sets off some alarm bells for me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's, and then there's John Phillips. John Phillips was another hugely influential figure. He was, you know, not only the founder of the Mamas and the Papas, one of the one of the most commercially successful Laurel Canyon bands, but he also co-organized the Monterey Pop Festival and wrote the song that uh, kind of served as the siren song for the, for the Summer of Love that, that was sung by his buddy, uh, Scott McKenzie. Uh, the song, uh, San Francisco, Be Sure to Wear Flowers. Oh, it was a wretched song, but everybody knows it. <laughs> So he was he was a, he was a hugely influential character also uh, on the music scene and in sort of uh, disseminating this whole music scene to the rest of the country through you know through the Monterey Pop Festival and and drawing people into the the Summer of Love and all that and he's got more military connections than I mean it's just. His, his dad was a career Marine Corps officer. Uh, he himself was uh, attended Annapolis uh, Naval Academy. His first wife, who was a direct descendant of John Adams and, Don, and John Quincy Adams, uh, worked at the Pentagon. His uh, sister, older sister Rosalind worked at the Pentagon. 
his brother was a retired Marine with uh, combat experience who became a dirty uh, D.C. area cop. And his mother worked uh, her entire career in some capacity for the federal government. So, I mean, everybody around his, his entire family worked directly for, uh, you know, the, the, the military intelligence complex. Uh, everyone but him, supposedly, or that's what we're supposed to believe, that even though, you know, everybody that, that, that surrounded this guy was, was uh you know, employed by the Defense Department in some capacity, and even though he, you know, attended military academies and graduated from Annapolis and, you know, had all these other strange, uh, you know, biographical details that, you know, we're supposed to believe that, that he had nothing to do with any of that, you know, which I find a little hard to believe myself, uh, you know, especially when you considering that, that he's just one of many, many of the people in Laurel Canyon that, that had that kind of background. I mean, if, if it was just one or two of these guys, maybe you could overlook it and say, you know, okay, that's a coincidence, or, you know, this guy went into this career because he's rebelling against his parents' values, or, you know, blah, blah, blah. But when you come up, with, come up to it time after time after time after time, it kind of gets a little difficult to just sort of, uh, you know, write it off as, uh, you know, a coincidence or, you know, uh, an aberration or what, or what have you. Well, that, that's where I want to go in, in this, um, as we're approaching the, uh, the bottom of the hour. Uh, and again, folks, and, and let, this is a good time to just take a departure for a second. We're talking with Dave McGowan. Uh, Dave, uh, you want to give the website and, um, and how people can find out about not only this series but the past uh, uh, information and articles that you've um, disseminated? Yeah, yeah, the website is www.davesweb.cnchost.com. That's uh, Dave's Web, D-A-V-E-S-W-E-B dot C-N-C-H-O-S-T dot com. Kind of a pain in the butt, but... Uh, that's all right, and uh, for those who can't write that fast, um, along with uh, the uh, posting of your... Uh, URL and the link to the audio uh, will be your uh, website as well, so they can click on that. In fact, as they're listening to it now, whenever now should be, uh, they can also hit your website as we speak, so not a problem. But now what's interesting is you have a lot of information up there, but you don't sell a whole lot of things. Is that correct? Uh, I don't sell anything. <laughs> I'm not here to sell anything. I, I, uh, no, I mean, I do have three books out, but the most recent book that I put out was uh, Program to Kill, which I think was released in 2004. So it's, uh, it's been out there for a while. Still a good book if anybody wants to read it, but yep. no, I'm not, uh, I have nothing, um, nothing to pitch, <laughs> unfortunately. Well, Program to Kill, I think, what, would you call that your favorite baby? Would that be correct? That is, uh, yeah, that's that's one of my proudest accomplishments. Uh, yeah, I, I, I really like that book. I, you know, people have very mixed reactions to it, but uh, of the three, it's the one that I'm, I'm proudest of, yeah. And what are the other two titles, Dave? The other two titles, one of them, uh, one of them goes all the way, almost, almost a decade old now. It's hard to believe. I think it was published in 99 or something. It was uh, Derailing Democracy. And, the, and then in 2001, I think, was uh, Understanding the F-Word. 
So those are both, yeah, those those are even older ones. So uh, yeah, I have nothing. Uh, I have nothing new to sell. Just my my new series on my website, which is freely available to anyone who wants to uh, venture over and take a look. And again, we're uh, talking about inside the LC, the strange but mostly true story of Laurel Canyon and the birth of the hippie generation. And um, admittedly, uh, you were born in '60. Um, I had nine years on you, so. Uh, a, a lot about what you wrote, I got a chance to, you know, like I said, be a participant in to a certain extent. Uh, but for yourself, I mean, not that you had to be born when I was or even before that to to appreciate that. But uh, you also, um, now, did you have older siblings uh, that kind of like had music hanging around that you might have listened to, might not have listened to unless, you know, you had somebody older who was playing stuff that you kind of, you know, like that happened with my sister uh, who's you know, eight years ahead of me. I mean, I was hearing rock and roll when I was six years old, and it kind of like all sank in. Did you have a situation where you had someone older who was into this, and it kind of just by osmosis got into you as well? A little, not too much. I have, I have two older brothers, but we were very, very close. My uh, The middle brother is one year older than me. Uh, my okay. oldest brother is two years older. We're a Catholic family. My mom was just pumping them out. <laughs> We were literally like a year apart. I don't know how the hell she even did it. Bless her, yeah. and she would have had more, but she had problems with delivering me, and the doctors told her she couldn't have any more. She would have pumped out more. But, uh, yeah, so I, I do have two older brothers, but uh, not a great deal older. But they, they were into music a little before me and, and probably got me into it a little earlier than, than I would have otherwise. I remember the first concert I went to, I was like probably like 12 years old to see uh, Three Dog Night at the uh, forum, which was interesting. And uh, I was actually going to go with my mother because <laughs> I wasn't old enough to go alone. <laughs> and we happened to have an older cousin who was out visiting from Iowa at the time. And I ended up going with this cousin of mine who was like 19 or 20 at the time, which was very cool because it spared me from having to go with my mom. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, the first concert I went to, I was I was very young, and I was shocked that, that like, all these people around us were smoking pot and stuff. <laughs> I didn't know what the hell was going on. <laughs> so, yeah, that was my first concert. And they, they were a Laurel Canyon band as well. I left them off the list. But, yeah, Three Dog Night was yet another uh, Laurel Canyon band. Well, uh, I, I think I got this right, um, and this is just a little minutia, which you can forget about as soon as it comes out of my mouth, but I think Chuck Negron is a Jersey guy, um, and uh, if memory serves me correctly, uh, I had a, a good friend in the Jersey days uh, who lived across the street from his sister during the, uh, the high point of Three Dog Night, and uh, of course he uh, fell on some hard times, and I think apparently has reinvented himself, and is kind of going back out and, and singing again. But, um, uh, did, I mean, did you, uh, not, I don't know how much, how deeply you went into Now You do address uh, uh, Negron and uh, Three Dog Night. Uh, did you find a, not that this isn't really necessary, but if he had Jersey roots in that? Uh, I can't remember. I think he may have. I, I, I'd have to look it up. I know I have it in my notes. I, he was a basketball star. He was a star athlete, and I, yeah, he was a, a renowned uh, basketball star. I know that, and uh, yeah, I don't remember all the details of his bio. Uh, well, he got into some bad, bad uh, drug situations, didn't he? 
He, yeah, he ended up, yeah, yeah, he, I mean, the, the band was hugely successful, I mean, just massively successful, uh, just, just a whole string of, of uh, hit singles and hit albums, he made tons of money, and, uh, yeah, then he developed a, just a major heroin addiction, and, uh, yeah, went through, went through, like, something like two dozen attempts at rehab that all failed, and ended up actually living on the streets, homeless and penniless. Uh, for a while, and uh, finally cleaned himself up, and, and uh, I think he's doing better now. Although his son also went went through a, a major uh, major ordeal. I don't know how he's doing now, but uh, yeah, he he definitely fell on hard times, and uh, almost ended up uh, bludgeoned in the Wonderland house, according to his own account. According to his own account, he was. He was a regular buyer from that house and had set up a buy that very night, but uh, because he was already trashed, he fell asleep and never made it over, or uh, he might have ended up one of the bodies on the floor of the of the Wonderland house. So, yeah, he, uh, he definitely, definitely hit some bad times. So Negron might very well have been uh, in the Wonderland house when... Um uh, Manson's uh, posse uh, uh, descended upon them. Well, it wasn't Manson. It was actually uh, Eddie Nash's posse okay. uh, in the Wonderland house, and uh, including John Holmes. Uh, you know, that's 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 an interesting story in and of itself. But yeah, that that happened in Laurel Canyon. A lot of people probably don't realize that yeah, Wonderland Avenue runs right through the heart of Laurel Canyon, and uh, so yeah, it's kind of odd that, that what is considered to be the most brutal mass murder in uh, LA history, ha you know, occurred in this uh, exclusive, remote, uh, you know, very serene, rustic uh, neighborhood. Played host to the most brutal, brutal murder in the city's history. Now, is that um, account uh, chronicled in any kind of movie? Was there a movie out there? Ah, uh, yeah, it's about kill. Well, it was actually it was fictionalized in uh, Boogie Nights. The incident was sort of fictionalized in the movie Bookie Bookie okay. Nights by uh, whatever that guy's name is, the guy that did the... Marky Mark? Um, no, no, I the director, I can't, but, uh, but it's, it's, it's handled in a much more, more literal, realistic fashion in a movie called uh, Wonderland with Val Kilmer that gives a few different versions of the crime from different people's perspective and kind of leaves it to the viewer to decide which, which one or which combination of ones is, is the truth. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, Chuck Negron was, uh, was a regular visitor there. And uh, his bandmate, Danny Hutton, uh, lived right down the street. He lived on Wonderland Avenue. A whole bunch of them lived on Wonderland Avenue. That band, did you know that that band, by the way, was uh, basically formed by uh, Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys? No, I had no idea. No, not even a connection. Yeah, it's, uh, Danny Hutton was one of his best friends, good buddies. He hung out with uh, Brian all the time, and uh, Brian sort of started them out. Uh, it was originally called Redwood, and uh, he recorded their original demos and, and uh, got the three guys together, Hutton and Negron and uh, Corey Wells. And, uh, yeah, he was, the, he was the original driving force behind uh, Three Dog Night, strangely enough, with Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. Another whole story too with the Beach Boys, and uh, we won't go into that right now. But yeah, Dennis Wilson, and, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then Brian Free, you know, frying his brain for the most part, and 
some of the stuff they were involved with. And, and there's another character in there, too, uh, uh, Terry Melcher, right? Isn't that Doris Day's son? Terry Melcher, yeah, he was, yeah, he was, he was a uh, big player in the Laurel Canyon scene. Yeah, he produced uh, the Birds, you know, the first big Laurel Canyon band. He, he produced a lot of the albums that that came out of there and was closely associated with a lot of these musicians. Uh, good buddy with Dennis Wilson, him and uh, Wilson and uh, Greg Jacobson is. Uh, like a right-hand man who was married to, actually, to uh, the daughter of Lou Costello, the old-time comedian. And, yeah, they were, the three of them, Wilson and uh, Melcher and uh, Jacobson, were, were major players in a lot of this stuff. And uh, they called themselves the Golden Penetrators, by the way. That was the nickname that the three of them uh, gave themselves. And I'll, I'll leave it to your... Listeners to uh, figure out why. <laughs> well, that, that goes that's right up there with the honey drippers. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, the three of them, and of course their fourth buddy Charlie Manson, who was very much a part of that, of uh, the whole scene. Yeah, and was very close to to Melcher and Wilson, and you know lived with lived with uh, Wilson for you know the summer of '68 and. Yeah, and, you know, had visited the Cielo Drive house with Terry Melcher, who lived there before Polanski and Tate, and, yeah, this, that whole, I haven't really got into too much of that yet, but, yeah, that's a, that's a whole other thing that runs through this story, is the whole Charlie Manson angle and all of the people that he was connected to, and, uh, yeah, particularly Melcher and uh, Wilson. Okay, also, that number's very large among the uh, Laurel Canyon alumni are uh, two very heavy hitters who joined together but came from different beginnings. Uh, and let's take them one at a time first. The, the two of them are Stephen Stills and then David Crosby. Uh, but let's take Stephen Stills first. That's that's another uh, an aha about where uh, he comes from. Yeah, uh, according to what I've read, and I've, I've had more, a little more trouble digging up biographical details on him than some of the other guys, but from what I've gathered, uh, yeah, his father was a uh, career military. Uh, he grew up basically in Texas, but his father spent a considerable amount of time in Central America, uh, Panama Canal Zone, El Salvador, Costa Rica, various other places, and, you know, of course, as everyone knows, uh, Central America has been a hot spot of you know, covert uh, intelligence and military operations for as long as anybody can remember. And that's where uh, that's where his pop spent, you know, a lot of his time down there. And occasionally Stephen would, would go down there with him, and, you know, he attended, uh, you know, military academies and schools on military bases and whatnot. And he basically had the same sort of uh, military brat uh upbringing that, that all the rest of these guys did. He was surrounded by, you know, military and, and intelligence types, you know, and uh, attended military schools and came from a military family and yada, yada, yada. Uh, and he also, the, one of the most interesting parts about the Stephen Still story is that later on, uh, he used to tell people, like to tell people that he had served a term of duty over in Vietnam which is universally dismissed. Every time you see it in the literature, it's immediately followed by a dismissal that it that was just a drug, you know, drug-fueled delusion that he had, and it couldn't have actually happened because 
he was he showed up on the Laurel Canyon scene at the very time that the first uniformed troops were were uh, arriving in Vietnam, and he remained in the you know public spotlight for the rest of his life. So obviously he couldn't have served a term of duty. But what all these people uh, ignore, you know, deliberately or otherwise, is that we had we had people there from at least. 1961 on, uh, you know, hundreds of, of quote-unquote advisors who were actually, you know, CIA special forces personnel over there, you know, doing their thing covertly before we introduced ground troops. And, you know, given his background, his family background and whatnot, um, it's entirely possible that, that he... <laughs> That he could have been, uh, you know, served served some time over in Vietnam, you know, in the early days back before we, you know, before we were openly engaged in Vietnam, he very well could have, and you know, that's that's what he told people, and of course, you know, nobody nobody wanted to believe it, but you know, to me, it's an, it's entirely feasible that they could very well have have done that. So that's Stephen Stills. Uh, David Crosby is an interesting character. He is uh, also the son of a uh, military intelligence guy, World War II military intelligence guy, uh, Floyd Delafield Crosby. But beyond that, he's also, his his full name is actually David McCortland Crosby, and he's actually a the offspring of these three sort of very closely intermarried, intertwined families, the Van Rensselaer, Van Cortland, and Van Schuler families, which, if you look them up, has produced just uh, this whole slew of important people. I mean, just, oh, yeah. uh, you know, Navy admirals, generals, uh, Supreme Court justices, federal judges, U.S. senators, congressmen, state senators, governors, you know, I mean, this family has occupied every conceivable position of power in, you know, the, the uh, political and legal realms for since the founding of the country. Um, and he's also a direct descendant of both uh, John Jay and Alexander Hamilton. But also, Dave, I tell you, those families that you mentioned, um, Van Rensselaer, Van Schuyler, Van Cortland, along with uh, Roosevelt, they comprise the, what we call, you know, the East Bank families uh, that go back to the beginning uh, Dutch uh, patroons uh, along the Hudson River. I mean, that, you know, those names are all there to be seen to this day. Rensselaer, you know, is a county in New York, and Van Cortland, um, uh, Rockefeller's place is now also up in that area. Yeah, the, those names are all over the place. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't realize it until I started looking into it. But yeah, I mean, there's a Van Cortland Park in New York. There's a, a Van Rensselaer Hotel. There's, I mean, there's, yeah, those names are attached to all kinds of, uh, you know, parks and public buildings and, and the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. And yep. yeah, I mean, they're just, they're everywhere. Oh, but that, that's reminiscent of, I mean, of the rich Dutch that were here, obviously, in a, finally gave way to the British, but, and, and you know, the, like I said, that whole East Bank is just rife with their, uh, well, you can go there and, uh, and, and go on their estates, and also another one that's involved in that is uh, Vanderbilt. So, um, yeah, that was, uh, that was some kind of neighborhood on the east side of the Hudson River, and that extends right up through that uh, Albany area, uh, where, again, you know, where Rensselaer County is, and also uh, uh, 
Rensselaer Institute. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's some family to be hooked into. And then Crosby's in that bloodline, is he not? Yeah, absolutely. He's, uh, yeah, he carries, he, he carries the name. Uh, yeah, he's, he's definitely, definitely in the line of descent of that family. Absolutely, yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, yeah, and there, there were others as well. I mean, uh, one of the other, one of the other, uh, names on the scene who, who never, you know, made it as big as, as some of these other people that we're talking about, but he was very much on the scene was, uh, Ned Doheny. Who was an offspring of the uh, Doheny clan, the uh, you know the oil family that, uh, for those of you who've seen the movie um, There Will Be Blood, uh, the book that that's based on, Oil, was actually inspired by Ned, the uh, senior Ned Doheny, and so the uh, the homicidal Daniel's Plainview character is actually based on uh, Ned Doheny, and uh, it's a very extremely wealthy family. They built uh, built what back in I think the 1920s they built the uh, Greystone Estate, which is said to be the most expensive private residence ever built in Los Angeles County. It's a hugely wealthy family, uh, wealthy and powerful family, and uh, yeah, one of their offspring, uh, Ned Doheny, was was another uh, member of the Laurel Canyon crowd. And Graham Parsons also, his his uh, his family owned something like a third of all the citrus groves in Florida and Georgia. It was just massively wealthy family. Um, and he uh, he was another another member of the uh, Laurel Canyon royalty. So yeah, if you, if you go down the line, that's that's what you find. You find either military intelligence background or just uh, these just these hugely wealthy and powerful families, or both. <laughs> but you know, Grant Parson too. That was such a strange episode with him upon his death. Oh, that was just yeah, very bizarre with the whole Manson connection through Phil Kaufman, and yeah, that was. Oh, well, even the way they disposed of his body, if you remember, then you only got a whole bunch of other rock and rollers and uh, convicted, uh, indicted rather uh, when they when they burned his body out in the desert. Yeah, yeah, they kidnapped, kidnapped his body, or I don't know if kidnapped is the right word, stole his body, whatever it is. Well, they said they were executing, bad choice of words, uh, his wishes to be, to be cremated in the desert. Supposedly, yeah, and the whole story is just weird because, I mean, it, it was he was under, like, uh, LAPD guard and, you know, these two, uh, like, just, you know, disreputable characters, Phil Kaufman, I don't know who the other one, pull up in, like, this beat-up old hearse that they had gotten somewhere with, like, broken windows and all that, and just, you know, supposedly just snatched this body, like, right out from under the nose of the LAPD and then uh, took it out to Joshua Tree. And, yeah, ritually burned it, like, on the uh, summer solstice or the equinox or some such thing, and, yeah, by... Uh, all masterminded by Phil Kaufman, who was a, uh, the uh, Graham Parsons road manager. But before that, he was a buddy of Charles Manson's in uh, Terminal Island Prison. And uh, later in, in the canyons, he, he hooked up with him again later uh, when they both got out of prison. Manson got out in 67 and Kaufman in 68. And, uh, yeah, and this guy, this, this ex-con friend of uh, Charlie Manson somehow managed to become the road manager for, like, Stones and the Flying Burrito Brothers and all these other bands. <laughs> I know, it never ends. Which is kind of, I mean, yeah, what the hell was that guy even do, you know? <laughs> well, but yeah, he's the one that, he's the one that snatched uh, Parsons' body and took it out and burned it.
which which was just one of weird one of many weird deaths in the Parsons family. By the way, the entire family got seems to have gotten bumped off uh, over the years one at a time. So, also Grant Parsons is is, is forgotten for the most part because he really wasn't on the tip of tongues on the tip of tongues back in the 70s either. But every well, those of us who remember uh, remember him as a seminal member of the Flying Burrito Brothers, which spawned off, you know, so many artists that went into other groups. So Rick Roberts with Firefall, Bertie Leadon, you know, it goes on and on and on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was right on the cutting edge with, even before that, with his International Submarine Band, which was the band that he had when he first showed up in Laurel Canyon, and then uh, that one disbanded and partially reformed as the Flying Burrito Brothers, along with you know, Hillman from the Birds, yeah, uh, Bernie, Bernie Letton, who would go on to the Eagles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he was, he, he, the sound that he came up with, is, I mean, he was hugely influential on the Rolling Stones, too, in their right. country phase, you know, the, the country honk. And, uh, yeah, well, hence the song that he does is a tribute to them, Wild Horses, right? Yeah, he actually recorded Wild Horses before First. they did. It was actually released on his album before the Stones did their own version of it. And uh, although it's credited to, to Jagger and Richards, it's, it's pretty well, you know, assumed that, that Parsons had a major role in uh, writing that, as well as some of their other country-influenced uh, songs that they had on whichever, I don't know, was it Beggar's Banquet? Or, I don't know, one of their albums was really heavily country-influenced. And that, yeah, that was that was due to Parsons, and I mean the the entire the Eagles' entire career right. was was uh, <laughs> was based on taking what Parsons did and commercializing right. it, basically. In fact, I, I think you could say uh, that Parsons was a founding father of, of country rock, and also uh, he saluted somewhat in the Eagle song "Hickory Wind" that's on the on the Border album. Oh, did they record Hickory Wind? Yes, they did. Yeah, and that's all about Parsons. Because when I came into this in 73, uh, Billy Parsons had already died. Well, of course, he had died. And I had no idea. And somebody said, no, that's that's where it all starts. When you listen to that song, they're talking about Graham Parsons. And that's the person who birthed all this. There'd be no Eagles without Parsons. No, there would be no. There, no, there probably would have been no Jackson Brown. Right. And, and a lot of these, uh, that, whole, that whole sort of country rock... Uh, movement that, that came out of that yeah he, he he spearheaded that whole thing pretty much what i want to do is we only have about uh, five minutes left and i won't go into any more personages and we really just touched upon that first part of the four parts you have right up uh, on the uh, website right now uh-huh. again the uh, series is called inside the lc a strange but mostly true story of laurel canyon and the birth of the hippie generation but i want to ask you an outro question you can have the rest of the time to go ahead if you don't mind we're hoping to see you back perhaps in a week or two, Dave. But, you know, when you look at these people, um, I'm going to play devil's advocate, another bad choice of words. But, <laughs> but when you when you look at these uh, individuals who come out of families uh, who have a foot in uh, heavily, if not both, into military intelligence work, whatever, government, uh, now, if there's a conspiracy, I'm going to deal with that perhaps when we talk to you again. But I'm just going to ask you, is there a chance? that obviously these individuals, these offspring of military government types, probably have some really good genetic material, a decent IQ. Could it be that that they just, with, with their gifts, uh, rebelled against mom and dad and went off on this thing? Uh, and I'll just leave it right there because 
then there's other things we can talk about in another interview. What's the chances that they're just really gifted, had the best of the best, and chose perhaps to, and, and of course, obviously they had to have a music, musical inclination, otherwise this would not even, we wouldn't be talking about them. Yeah. What's the chances that they just said, you know, I mean, they're gifted, but mom and dad, I think you suck and I'm going to do this. Um, I think if, if it was just a, in, a, in a few cases, I, I think that there would be pretty good odds that that was, that that, that was what, what, what was at play here. And, and in some of these cases, a few of the cases that, that may be what is at play, but it's very hard for me to believe that, that so many of them could have the same background and that they could all just sort of magically come together in this one little remote spot perched in the hills above L.A., uh, especially considering that a huge number of them came from the Washington, D.C. area. I mean, just a, an uncanny number of them came directly from the, uh, the D.C. area. And it's just, it's very difficult for me to believe that that it's just sheerly coincidence that all of these, these people uh, just happen to come together in this one little isolated place, and, they all, and almost all of them happen, just happen to have the same sort of, uh, you know, the same, the same background if you dig deep enough. And there's no doubt that, that a lot of them were talented. I mean, I've, I've been a huge fan of, uh, of the music for, for a very long time, and, you know, I mean, to me, there's, there's nobody who's ever picked up the instrument can play the guitar better than Jimi Hendrix, you know, and, and nobody's ever matched the, the, the raw power and emotion of, of Janis Joplin's vocals, you know, and, and on and on and on. I mean, Frank's not, Frank uh, Zappa was, was, I'm not a huge fan of his music, but I can recognize that he was a, incredibly talented musician and composer. Uh, so they definitely did have talent. I mean, it wasn't that they were just sort of put in this position because of, of their backgrounds. I mean, they, they did have the, the talent to back it up. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But my question is, were they the only ones? I mean, was there nobody else? You know, <laughs> was there no just average Joes out there in the country that had this, uh, that had the talent and the ambition to succeed, or was it only the people that had the connections who got who got the lucrative contracts and all and all the heavy promotion from the record labels and the radio stations and whatnot? Well, uh, I tell you what, of course. I have to agree with you, and we'll get into that uh, in a second interview if we could. Uh, but I at least wanted to throw that out there because that would—I guess—that's what some debunkers would say. It's just like, hey, you know, you have the strain of rather uh, high-quality genetic material, and they're going to do what they're going to do. But I don't think you and I believe that uh, at all. I, I don't believe that. Yeah, I mean, you know, we talked about Graham Parsons a little bit. Uh, he, he also, his dad was a uh, military officer, and he attended, you know, military academy. And uh, in in the last few years of his life, when he he went solo, his uh, main collaborator was Emmy Lou Harris. That's who he worked with on his two uh, acclaimed solo albums. And she was also the daughter of a career Marine Corps officer. And she grew up in Woodbridge, Virginia, which is home to the uh, Harry Diamond Labs uh, Woodbridge facility, this big, huge military <laughs> research and development facility that just. Uh dominates the town that she grew up in. Well, are you with that, by the way? Oh, yeah, and I mean, and Emmy Lou, yeah, Grievous Angel, uh, she was involved in that, I believe. I'm not sure, is that right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But uh, 
Emmanuel Harris. Oh, don't say, say it's not true. Not Emmanuel Harris. <laughs> and, 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 well, I'll tell you real quick. Do you know anything about that Woodbridge facility? I looked it up. I, 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 I'd never heard of it before, but I, I, well, uh, it's one of the things when I, when I find out where these people were born, I look it up on MapQuest and see what the hell. Uh, I'll tell you what. I, honest to goodness, when I was in the Bureau and the FBI, and I didn't last long, uh, we were just all young guys then. Uh, yeah, Woodbridge was, was talked about. And uh, what's interesting also, uh, as an aside, is that Woodbridge also had a kick and bluegrass uh, station that uh, on the FM dial, which I listen to all the time. But, you know, everything in and around Virginia, I mean, Reston and Herndon and, and all, you know, and Woodbridge and yeah. Monaco and all that. I mean, the place is just growing. It's like Spook Central. I mean, and that's where most of these, I mean, if you look, that's where most of these people came from, you know. I mean, uh, Morrison, uh, Cass Elliott, John Phillips all went to high school in Alexandria, Alexandria. you know. Just uh, is on and on and on. Uh, you know, Zappa was just right around, just right nearby there, and uh, just outside of Baltimore, and, you know, Tim Buckley, and just... It just goes, uh, one of the monkeys, was, you know, I mean, it's it's just amazing how many of these people came out of the Virginia suburbs lining uh, Washington, D.C., just time after time after time. Yeah. <laughs> when you go to the store, and actually during those days uh, in the Bureau, I lived both in Alexandria, the Rose Hill section, and then moved up to, I didn't like Virginia at all, and LPD liked me, and I moved up to Laurel, Maryland, where, uh, Rock, uh, where uh, no, not Rockefeller, what's his name, George, <laughs> Give me Wallace got popped. Uh, uh, he, uh, we used to go shopping in the area where he uh, uh, was assassinated. Of course, he didn't die. But anyway, that whole section, you know, when you go up to somebody there and you're dealing with something, you never know who you're talking to. You know, even if you're in the 7-Eleven, you, you just never know who anybody is because that place is so rife, you know, with military intelligence type and government type. So, yeah, yeah nobody who is who they seem they are. <laughs> and you got to be really careful or, like myself, not be and, and then, you know, stay very long in the bureau. Yeah, so, Norfolk is a popular place. Also, there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, a lot of these people lived in or around uh, Norfolk, Virginia, which I guess is the home of the like the world's largest uh, naval base. Naval, that's right. Oh yeah. Listen, yeah, been, I mean that whole area around there is, uh, yeah, and, and yet they all ended up on the other side of the country in this isolated little community up above, uh, you know, in the hills above LA, and and a huge, huge proportion of them came right from that area that you're talking about, from Arlington, Alexandria, Norfolk, uh, you know, that that whole well, beltway or whatever they call it there. I, I, I've never actually been <laughs> to the East Coast, so I'm not that. I only know what I see on the map. You know? well, all those uh, 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 communities are outside the Beltway for sure, but I mean, it's still it's just loaded. I mean, you talked about Edgewood, which anybody driving down 95 uh, will, will. I don't know if it's you know the signs are still there, but I mean, it, it said there was a you know Edgewood Arsenal on 95, and then also uh, you know when I lived in Laurel, I wasn't that far away from guess where Fort Meade. And, uh, and that legacy. So, I mean, it's, it is. It's just a different place. But, you know, it's so interesting that some of these, uh, and a good deal of these rock and roll personages were spun out and wound up in the complete opposite area from where they had been. You know, and, and that's from the East Coast to the West Coast and to uh, L.A. and also up in the San Francisco. And I'm thinking of another name, too. I don't think it's associated with Laurel Canyon. But, I mean, John Denver, was he not also a military brat? His name was Dusendorf. 
yeah, I believe he was. I haven't really looked into that because it's not directly related. But, uh, yeah, I believe he was. And, 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 of course, you know, there's been questions raised about, about his death as well. And we, haven't even, we didn't even get into that in this hour about just this phenomenal number of these people or people closely connected to these people who died these very uh, curious deaths at a very young age. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's astounding how many of these people uh, didn't, didn't uh, <laughs> weren't with us very long. So didn't live to full bloom. Yeah, not even close. No. I mean, they were just dropping like flies. It's, it's, it's uncanny. And also, uh, we'll get into that in another room if you, if you wish, but it, it got to be so actually frequent that, you know, we kind of like, how should I say, sardonically kidded around about uh, who would we nominate for the all-time dead band. <laughs> and, you know, and I don't mean Grateful Dead. I mean, it was just like, there was just so many dropping off. I mean, like, so what's, what's Heaven's Band? In fact, I think, who was that? Uh, Bill Medley did a song about that, about all the people who had died, you know, and it would be up in heaven and, or wherever they, they go and play. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was. It was just like, what's going on? And that whole year, I mean, you were, you know, probably, what, 8 to 10 years old. Um, but, I mean, we had just gotten out of high school, and we're looking at all this completely crazy stuff. But, it's, you know, I mean, between bombings on campuses and, of course, Kent State had happened, uh, uh, Woodstock was in bed, uh, Monterey did not work out well, uh, and all these deaths. Altamont. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, Altamont is the one that's most infamous, right? Yeah. It is a Monterey. You got that right. And, you know, we just sat and we watched all this stuff, and it's amazing how a young person just kind of assimilates this or makes some kind of sense or just blocks it off in the compartment of their mind. Because when I look back at that, if that were happening today, oh, man, who knows? And we may see that happen. But back there, I don't know how we made sense of it unless we just ignored it and tried to go on with our lives because I don't think it was a crazier time than the mid-60s and the mid-70s. Yeah, it was. I mean, yeah, it, it was. Uh, there were just people dropping left and right, especially, yeah, especially uh, the Laurel Canyon crowd, and uh, yeah, the, the Manson murders were just, uh, which were very closely connected to the Laurel Canyon scene, were just really just the tip of the iceberg. There was, just, I mean, there was, there was two girls' bodies dumped in in Laurel Canyon in the late sixties, I think, in nineteen sixty-nine. Uh, two of them in one year that were just dumped on the basically in the brush on the side of the road. One of them, the daughter of a of a uh, intelligence operative, of course, and the other one never identified. And I mean, they were just bodies turning up everywhere. Just not not just to the of the, you know, rich and famous, like, you know, Hendrix and Joplin and Morrison and mm-hmm. Parsons, but, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of other people connected to the scene, the girlfriends of both David Crosby and Graham Nash, Jackson Brown's wife, and, I mean, just on and on and on and on. It's, it's uncanny. Uh, uncanny is definitely the best word we can use for that, but it was strange and very strange to this day. It exists as the same. All right, Dave, listen, thanks for the time that you spent with us. Uh, again, we're talking with Dave McGowan. The website is daveweb.cnchost.com. That link will be up next to the audio, no big deal. Uh, the series we're talking about is Inside the LC, the strange but mostly true story of Laurel Canyon and the birth of the hippie generation. Um, what? Are you laughing there? Uh, the t- I, just, I was laughing. The, the title derives from the fact that... Uh, <laughs> When you're when you're looking at anything concerning Hollywood, it is very very difficult to to sort out fact from legend. Hence the title, "The Strange but Mostly True." 
Because, I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever delved, you know, delved into the dirt of Hollywood, but, man, it is just, it's it's not easy to navigate through. There's just so much, you know, uh, or so many legends and myths and, uh, you know, trying to figure out. And, and a lot of stuff that is true that is written off as legend and myth, you know, to, to divert attention away from it. And, and some stuff that really is legend and myth and... It's very hard to sort out the truth from from fantasy when when you're dealing with Hollywood because everything's a friggin' fantasy in Hollywood. Well, they named it after the wood of the holly, which is a favorite wood used by the magicians for their wands. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think the uh, the naming of that part of uh, L.A. is not uh, unintentional. Let's put it that way. I didn't know that. It's interesting. Yeah, well, there's one down in Florida, too, and somebody said, so what does that mean? But apparently Hollywood, Florida was supposed to be the film capital East, which never happened. So there was an idea to do the same thing out in California that they did here, and they hence the name Hollywood. So, uh, but yeah, it comes from the, the, the wood of the holly, which was uh, the Druid's uh, 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 wand's uh, composition. Ah, well, that is appropriate, then. Oh, it certainly is. <laughs> so it, it also reminds you, too, of, like, the movie uh, Chinatown at the end. Although it's not a Hollywood thing, it's an L.A. thing based on fact with the water wars. And, of course, when uh, they had the last scene, the cop tells Nicholson, Jake, it's Chinatown. Yeah. Nothing makes sense. Don't try to. Uh, well, he was, a big, he was a big part of the Laurel Canyon scene, too. I haven't even got into all that yet. The whole the, the yeah. young Turk thing go with, uh, you know, uh, Peter Fonda and Hopper and Bruce Dern and... Uh, Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty and all these guys—they were all a big. They were a big part of that scene as well. Yeah, and we're, you're getting there, and we won't jump ahead of you. So, um, uh, with Easy Rider and the Trip and <laughs> all of that. You remember all, all the stupid exploitation movies? Oh, absolutely. But uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of people probably don't know that Jack Nicholson actually wrote the the, movie, the, the screenplay for the trip about an LSD trip, and also uh, wrote the screenplay for the Monkeys movie Head. Strangely enough. Well, uh, I, I was going to go there, and strangely enough, if you look real close, when they had that restaurant scene, who's being ushered out of the restaurant but Jack Nicholson? Mm hmm. Yeah, he had a cameo in that. I think Hopper did too. Uh, Hopper. Napa. Right. Hopper yeah. was also oh, with him. All of these people were very closely intertwined. The, the, the music scene with the sort of young Hollywood scene, and uh, right. yeah, it was all—it was all just one big happy family living there in the canyons. All the sons and daughters of uh, the military <laughs> intelligence complex running around bumping each other off, which you know, if that's what they want to do, it's none of my business, I guess. <laughs> well, I tell you what, with this, you've opened up a can of worms. But I tell you what, it's. Um it's certainly an interesting can of worms, and, and we're not done with it by any means. So uh, thanks for, for uh, delving into that area, and who knows where this is going to lead. As you said, uh, it, it has many, many tentacles. And uh, uh, hopefully you'll come back in a week or so. Is that all right, Dave? Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. All right, listen, thanks for being with us on this weekend, and you take care of yourself and look forward to talking to you soon. Okay, you too, thanks. All right, bye-bye, Dave. Bye. We have with us again today, after having done a pre-record, we have Dave McGowan with us, who's working on a very interesting and very, I should say, um, arousing uh, series called Inside the LT, the strange but mostly true story of Laurel Canyon and the birth of the hippie generation. Uh, we, we did a pre-record, as we said, he's on live now. A lot of you folks might want to ask questions and make some comments. We've got a ton of stuff that came through emails 
uh, to that effect, and I think we'll start the show off with that if that's okay. So, Dave, thanks a lot for coming back, and uh, I would say uh, you get a live one here. Uh, yeah, it seems to be uh, taking on a life of its own. This is actually, I think, the, the third interview I've done in the last uh, week or so, and i got two more uh, lined up. All of a sudden, I'm I'm a very popular guy. <laughs> Well, which paradoxically is is, is uh, slowing me down on finishing up this series now because I'm just getting inundated with emails and interview requests and and uh, it's kind of weird. I'm not I'm not used to being such a popular guy. <laughs> well, this too shall pass. <laughs> I'm used to working in obscurity, you know, and just uh, not having anybody really, not too many people other than my my devoted followers, my small. Uh, cult of devoted followers who uh, pay, attention, pay much attention to what I have to say, so it's, uh, it's kind of weird to uh, to, be, to have this sudden popularity. <laughs> well, you know, then good for you in a sense, because obviously when you put something out like that, uh, no matter how people feel, I guess, about politics, Dave, no matter how they feel about Flight 93, blah, 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 um, everybody in my cohort, which you were probably a little bit just beyond. I mean, like I said, I got like, what, nine years on you. But, I mean, you understand what that was all about. Anyway, a lot of those folks actually do get it. Uh, I guess we've lived long enough that we we realize we've been lied to. I I think that happens with age. I think this has been happening for some time. The older folks always said stuff to the younger folks, and I will admit I listened to it and looked at them and go, yeah, okay, Grandpa, take a hike. He was right. (laughs) I was wrong. (laughs) But um, along with music, though, this is a very special thing. Um, I, you know, growing up inside of it, I thought this was a very organic thing. And we're going to get into that definition of it. I'm going to ask you for your definition of it, because some of the questions that came in wanted to know about whether or not this whole thing was rigged or whether partly it was rigged, um, et cetera, et cetera. But um, let me, uh, if you want to uh, give us any comments with regard to that, by all means, uh, because if you don't or after you do, I'd like to uh, pass some comments and questions by you. Well, I certainly grew up believing that it was organic. Um, you know, like I, I think I mentioned, it's, it's getting hard for me to remember what I've, what I've covered in these various forums now. Cause, uh, but I, I, think, I think we talked before about uh, that I was born in 1960 and actually sort of uh, came of age in the, uh, the mid, mid-late 70s. But I always considered myself a, a child of the 60s, and now that was the music that I listened to and, and the fashions that I wore. And, you know, I mean, I was I was uh, wildly up with my peers when I went to uh, college because uh, it was like I started college in, uh, well, I went to junior college when I, I transferred to UCLA, I think, in like 1980 or 1981, which was the, the dawn of the Reagan uh, era. And uh, the whole campus was, like, filled with all these preppies, you know, wearing Izod Lacoste shirts and topside. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, like, the official uniform. And here's this, uh, here's this 60s throwback wandering the campus, you know, and bare feet and long hair. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I, I totally bought into it, uh, you know, pretty much my entire life up until maybe, like, you know, 10 years ago, I started having my doubts and, you know, started reading things like um, uh, Martin Lee's Acid Dreams and, uh, you know, various other works that kind of called into question, you know, just how much of it was organic. But I, I always believe that at least the, the, the music, the soundtrack of the 60s 
was real and organic. And uh, unfortunately, in the last year, year and a half, I've, I've even begun to seriously question that. And that's uh, sort of what brought about this, this series, um, which I began with a quote from uh, Stephen Stillman for what it's worth. There's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. And I have to say that after close to a year and a half now of digging through this, it's it's still not, (laughs) it still ain't exactly clear, but I'm hoping that by the time I I complete this journey, it will have all uh, come into some kind of a focus. All right. Fair enough. And and let me remind you, this is a comment, and, um, you know, I'm not saying I agree with it or not. It doesn't make a difference. I mean, this is what the folks are thinking, and let me run this by you. Okay. That, um, you guys sort of talking about a lot of uh, these musicians from the 60s uh, that were children of people in the military. It was real cool that you mentioned Jim Morrison. Before his name was even brought up, I said to myself out loud, yeah, such musicians like Jim Morrison. And you guys mentioned his name. However, I had no clue that Jim Morrison's father was involved in the Gulf of Tonkin incident. That was real news to me. If this is true, then Morrison obviously knew what really happened there leading to the Vietnam War. And I'll stop right there. I don't really think he might have, but Dave, do you have any uh, information to the fact that he did? And if so, does that make a difference? I know I do not have any specific information that he knew. I I mean, he he knew obviously that his dad was uh, deployed in that arena. I mean, he basically saw him off. I I have a picture of him on the on the uh, bridge bridge with his father in January of 1964. Not long before uh, he shipped off to go over to that part of the world, but the incident occurred in August of '64. So I mean, it was just literally just months before. he knew his father was there. He knew that his father was the commanding officer of the fleet that was there. So, I mean, you know, I, I suppose he could have uh, deduced that, that his dad was directly involved, but uh, I, don't, I don't have any specific information that... that uh, okay. Well, no, I mean, um, and like I said, I can understand uh, the individual running with that, and he might, in fact, be true. So let me finish up with his next paragraph. He said, more reason to prove that he was definitely murdered. All right, now hold that for a second. He probably spoke too much. Imagine being someone working in intelligence and knowing that there was a real famous musician out there in the world whose father was there at the Gulf of Tonkin. Obviously, this man's son would know the truth of what really happened, and his popularity would obviously pose a threat to national security. If this is true about Morrison, then it is final. He was definitely murdered. That's just to name a few, of course, with the the people we're talking about. Um, But again, we really can't say, well, I mean, you tell me. Was Morrison whacked, or did he do himself? Uh, well, to, in, to my mind, there's two possibilities. If he was, and if he did indeed die, when when uh, we're told he did, and and bearing in mind that that there was never any body produced, there was no autopsy, there was no service, they didn't even announce his death until he was allegedly in the ground. Uh, he was buried within four days supposedly, despite the fact that he was a you know a U.S. national and a very famous one. Uh, they, they, they cleared all the hurdles somehow and got him, uh, got, got everything done and, and, uh, his body in the ground within four days before it was even announced that he was dead. So by the time they did, they had announced that, uh, 
that he was gone. Uh, it was basically, but there's nothing to see here. You know, don't don't bother coming around because uh, he's already buried. There's no, you know, I mean, nobody ever saw the body. There was no autopsy and no service help. So the first question is, did he even die in Paris? Uh, which is an open question in my mind. But if he did, if he did in fact die over there, then I would say that uh, there's a very, very, very high chance that he was murdered, yeah. Um, also, you have to understand something as we go into this season, especially in Florida, which we've not had to worry too much about, but as dry as we've been, it is uh, now the hurricane season. However, I just want to say for you folks on the East Coast, um, there may be some kind of disruption due to uh, storms on the East Coast. This is something that we might have to live with uh, if uh, those things happen to visit us in Florida on Wednesday. So if you've got uh, some issues that you might think are um, contributed to uh, uh, the weather. They, in fact, are. Uh, anybody else who's trying to listen to the show, uh, you can, um, if you have a problem, go ahead and refresh and try to click in that way and tell me how you make out. Um, yeah, we really don't know about Morrison, but, of course, this isn't just uh, an isolated case, but we'll get back to that a little bit later. Morrison had also, he he had told a number of interviewers, he had talked about sort of reinventing himself. He said he could see himself uh, uh, having a radical career change and sort of transforming that same person. I mean, the guy was just, uh, yeah, he was a bit of a changeling, and and he had talked about, about, uh, about, you know, basically just sort of reemerging as a a completely different individual, uh, completely different profession and, and everything else. So I think there's, there's a lot of open questions about whether Jim Morrison really die over there in Paris. All right. Oh, we also have a caller, um, and uh, let's take them now, Dave. Uh, hello, caller. You're on. Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I got a message from the producer saying, prank call, they are gone. That's okay. Let, let me just say this now, folks. If you do want to call in, you can do so on triple triple three. Nine zero zero nine, and when you call in, you're not going to get somebody who's going to hook you in as a screener. But if you call and then you start to hear the show, you are in, and we will get to you. So you're not going to hear anybody say anything to you. You hear the show and you call in, you're there. So uh, be that as it may. Also, let me just say this also that um, you can also send emails to Visigoth at hotmail.com, Visigoth at Verizon.net. You can use MSN IM, the messenger, and that would be Visigoth. And, uh, again, we're hearing from people that things are a little crazy, but this is summertime, well, you know, for the most part, summertime in a lot of places in America, and certainly that is the case uh, here in Florida. So, uh, you know, things will happen with the weather. If you get bounced out, uh, it's probably due to that. Come back in if you can. If you're having a hard time listening to the conversation, um, then go ahead and uh, refresh. Um, okay. And I'm, I'm, that's, that's where I'm getting to the most part here. So, Dave, I have to do a little bit of maintenance here because – Everything's coming through um, on my screen. But on to um, a second item, if you would. Uh, and this is from a listener from over in Paris. Um, let's see. Okay, here's a, a couple of questions that being posed. Dave mentioned that only two years ago he was completely unaware of Laurel Canyon. Be interesting to know what tipped him off in that direction, his path to discovery, so to say. What do you think? Uh, it was actually a book that my eldest daughter got for me uh, for Christmas. Uh, not this, not this uh, past Christmas, but the one before. 
uh, a book called Laurel Canyon written by a guy named Michael Walker. It was uh, fairly newly released at the time. And uh, it covers the the Laurel Canyon scene. It kind of introduced me to the fact that this this uh, this sort of uh, remote, isolated neighborhood in L.A. had had uh, had had been home to all these these this was just amazing array of musicians. And there was a lot of little clues, a lot of little little uh, warning bells that went off in my head as I was reading this, sort of reading between the lines. And so ever since then, I've, I've been reading everything that I can get my hands on about that, that era. Uh, just every book and magazine article and web post and everything else that, that, uh, that I can get my hands on, ferreting out all the little, the little sort of details that are, you know, sort of hidden in, in the, the mainstream accounts of that era. It got to be something also, Dave, that you weren't really, you know, you didn't need all that kind of priming. I mean, it was kind of probably there anyway, and this gave you a bit of a what, of a, a little bit of a trigger to go do it. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, well, the thing that this, that just instantly drew me to the story and that, that was so fascinating to me is that it was it's so close to home. You know, I mean. Oh, that's right. Like, yeah. So close to me, and it's somewhere that I can actually go and, and visit. I mean. You know, I can jump in my car and in, in 15, 20 minutes be be at these places. You know, seeing them for real, how they mm-hmm. how they look today, and sort of getting a a feel and a vibe for the place. So I was just just instantly drawn to the story by by you know a number of factors. Um, yeah, one one of the key ones of which is that it just it happened right in my backyard here, and I didn't even know about it. That's you know <laughs> that's the way things go. Yeah, I, I was kind of offended by that in a way that, you know, I've been doing, I've been researching this, I've lived here all my life and I've been researching this stuff for a, a good number of years and yet, uh, and yet they, they pulled the wool over my eyes on something that happened right behind my back, you know, so that's... Uh, how dare they? I know. How, yeah, exactly, how dare they? But it's always in your own neighborhood, you don't know what the heck is going on. Yeah. All right, we're going to go on with um, uh, some questions and comments from... Uh, uh, Erky out in uh, uh, Paris. I'd like to hear both of your views on the relationship between the organic and inorganic. In other words, something was very real and authentic during the 60s, organic, and something was contrived, inorganic. How did one influence the other, and to what level? I'll stop right there. There's a third part to this, but um, you tell me what your take is, because I came to this up late also as to what might have been, you know, bricked. What do you think about what really truly was an evolution, if you would, or a revolution, and what might have been also either injected into it or, you know, something other that turned it down the side street. Um, I, you know, any more and more, I'm of the opinion that, that what we think of as the 60s counterculture, which is the, the whole hippie, flower child, uh, you know, freak, whatever, whatever term you want to apply to it, movement, I think I, I'm... I'm really leaning heavily towards believing that, that that entire thing was a fraud, every aspect of it from, from beginning to end, and that there was a very real, a whole, a whole series of very real movements that were budding in the 1960s and the, in the early 60s, a budding anti-war movement, a budding uh, civil rights movement, a budding uh, uh, women's rights movement, uh, a budding black power movement, you know, through the Panthers and whatnot, and 
I, I think most of those, most if not all of those, were, were, were very legitimate. And and uh, this whole uh, sort of hippie thing just kind of moved in and overshadowed over that all of that, and sort of became identified in people's minds with what the 60s were all about. And uh, I, I think that whole aspect of it was was a sham. What? <laughs> well, <laughs> that makes well, you make a good point. Um, when you went back, and I think you quoted, uh, gee, I don't know if it was uh, Abby Hoffman or whatever, saying, you know, the anti-war protesters um, were protesting the war in Vietnam before the hippie generation or the flower power children came on the scene. Now, that is not necessarily exclusive of what you said, so can we assume also that the real hardcore political uh, elements were against the war, and then all of a sudden the love, the love children come through? and either kind of help or hinder what's going on. Uh, what's your take on that as far as what your research uh, uh, revealed? Yeah, I mean, they basically the, the, way, the way that I understand it is that there, there was a uh, an anti-war movement underway uh, largely on uh, college campuses, you know, with uh, professors and their students and whatnot, and, uh, you know, with respectable people. You know? <laughs> and, and then the hippies kind of came in, and all of a sudden all the focus was on them, and they became identified as sort of a protest movement. And... Uh, I think that was a very calculated move because it's a lot easier to discredit and marginalize and uh, you know, a group of you know these these long-haired, uh, strangely dressed uh, you know hippies with with their peace signs and their their peculiar music and you know I mean it was just they were so foreign to you know to mainstream America uh, I mean they just look like you know people from from another world or something and and that made it much easier to marginalize uh, you know what the uh, anti-war movement that developed because all the focus was on them the media presented them as the face of the anti-war movement the uh, you know the whole hippie generation but they weren't I mean or at least they weren't the ones that originally got the ball rolling and, you know, would have would have kept it rolling, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. And, and, you know, I mean, everybody else is that the, the, the hippies stopped the war, the 60s counterculture stopped the war, and yada, yada. But they didn't. Yeah. It, it carried on for an entire decade after the, the hippies came along. It didn't end for an entire decade after, you know, almost, what, 60,000, close to 60,000 Americans had been shipped home in pine boxes, you know. Uh, they didn't stop. I, I, I think they very much uh, contributed to the extension of the war by by diluting and taking a lot of the wind out of the sails of what would have been a very strong anti-war movement if they hadn't ever appeared on the scene. Um, I'm, I'm going to reserve a comment, but I want to go to the last uh, uh, component of this email. Um, the individual writes, the idea that Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison were intelligence agents is absurd, at least to me. The idea that intelligence agents enter their lives is not. How do both of you see the interaction? Go ahead, Dave. Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I, I, I agree that the idea that intelligence uh, operatives enter their lives is not observed absurd. Uh, but, you know, I mean, these people frequently kill their own, you know. I mean, just because somebody is... Is, is gets whacked, it doesn't mean that they were one of the good guys, you know? <laughs> no. 
So, uh, you know, I haven't really gotten into Jimi Hendrix too much. And all, I, I, all I mentioned was, the, you know, really the unusual circumstances of his death. Uh, he was not a huge part of the, the Royal Canyon scene. He identified with uh, San Francisco. Although he did spend time in Laurel Canyon, and, and according to some reports, he had to maintain a home there for a while. But I haven't really focused that much on him. Um, Jim Morrison, I think, is much, much more suspect than, uh, than Jimi Hendrix as far as, uh, yeah, whether whether he was a covert agent or not. Um, I, I'll have some more uh, information for you that I want to run by, but I, I, I want to at least then. Uh, what came to us through the listeners, because obviously, you know, that's why we do the show. So let's do this. Now, I don't know if you want to go here, but I do want to go here. And, um, you know, however you want to do it, that's fine. Uh, I just think it needs airing. We do a lot of things on symbology, Dave, um, and the bigger picture about, you know, I guess spiritual forces, if you will. Uh, I know it's kind of open-ended, but I'm going to just throw this out at you. Uh, somebody wrote who, who was uh, who was in Freemasonry, and he said, "When I took my third uh, degree in Masonry, we went through the story of Hiram Abiff and the Free Unworthy Workers." And he goes on and on and on. But um, uh, you know, I don't want to go through the. I mean, not that it's it, it's tedious whatsoever, but I want to get down to the kernel of what he was talking about, and that is in Masonry, the Laurel Branch, L A U R E L, the Laurel to the Bush has the has a significant meaning in Freemasonry. Now, let me ask you this. I don't know if you've come upon it. I don't know if you will come upon it or if you want to completely, I guess, uh, dispense with it. But are we looking at a little something going on in Laurel Canyon that might have been dealing with a quasi-secret society? What's your thoughts on that? Uh, I I haven't really looked at it from that angle. I, I'm not familiar at all with the... Uh what you were talking the about. The symbology of Laurel, yeah. Yeah, I, I, that's not a, an, uh, that's not, that has not come up in, in any regard in what I've read so far, so I have not looked at it at all from that angle. All right, I mean, that, I mean I'm mean, i wondering if that will come up, but also what I'm wondering is, uh, as you go deeper into the history of Laurel Canyon, which you did in part two to a certain extent, when you get back to Gene Harlow and Paul Byrne and such, I'm wondering if it even goes back to that. Uh, who knows if you can uncover that? I don't know that you want to do that or if it'll pop up all by itself. But I'm wondering if inlaid in, in the history of Laurel Canyon, if there wasn't a little something there that, that had a wink and a nod. Uh, it's quite possible. I, mean, I never know what's going to come up in this story, to be honest with you. I know. Last time I talked to you, you asked me about uh, John Denver. Are you the one? I think you Yeah, we talked about... Um, yeah, Dissendorf, and uh, yeah, and, and I said, yeah, I haven't really looked at that because he's he's not a part of you know he hasn't he hasn't come up in the story at all. Well, no sooner did I see it, <laughs> the very next day he came up in the story, and sure enough, he he moved to L.A. in uh, 1964, and he actually joined a band that uh, 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 Roger McGuinn, I believe it was, of the Birds had been in, same band as as one of the Birds, and. Uh, Turns out he was. He was. He was present. Uh, supposedly, according to some reports, he was present at the uh, the infamous riot on the Sunset Strip, and I think it was November of 1966. Uh, and yeah, so he actually 
Come to find out, no sooner had I told you that he wasn't a part of it than I came to find out that he was a part of it. And and you were right, he's a son of a career uh, Air Force officer, I believe it was. And like a lot of other people in the stories, there's a lot of open questions about his death. Uh, so yeah, he fits right. <laughs> well, he fits right in with the rest of these same family background, same mysterious past. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's amazing how many people are are rolled up into this story. People you wouldn't even, you know, Glenn Campbell was very much a part of the scene, and you know, I mean, these people that you wouldn't even, you know, it's, I know, I know. it's just it's. It's just weird. Yeah, it's just the story just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and I, I'm I, I don't even know what to do with it at this point. You know, there's just so many tentacles pointing out in so many directions. It's like which, you know, which leads do I follow, and and you know, and how far do I follow them? Because then they branch off into other, you know. So, well, in fairness to you, if I remember correctly, uh, you did not dispense with the fact that. Uh, John Denver might have been part of it, but you said, you know, mm, good point, and we left it at that, and lo and behold, you know, days after we spoke, you find out that, in fact, he was involved in the LC as well. And we've got some more um, um, emails coming in. I want to put this in a, in, a, in a kind of an order where we can, I don't know, I guess, do it in a way where it isn't uh, hopscotch, but, and uh, Karen, um, I've got your email, and I definitely want to get to it because if you want to know about Manson, I'm going to hold that off if we can. Uh, but we definitely want to address it. Also, Dave, we got this. Um, we, uh, we got it from Larry. He said, I just finished listening to the show on Laurel Canyon in the 60s today, and it blew my mind. Well, gee, that's where it all came from. <laughs> um, I had never given much thought to rock stars and their heritage of military intelligence connections. I knew about Morrison, but chalked it off to rebelling against his father that he, you know, lied about his parents being dead since he was ashamed of his father being a high-ranking military officer. Today, when all these icons of the 60s rock counterculture turn out to have military intelligence connections, then Dave's question was very appropriate. My question here, I guess, is this. What do you suppose the odds are that all of that just came purely together by chance? Uh, I, I think the odds are astronomical, to be honest with you. Um, and, you know, I, I haven't even gotten into it yet. I'm going to in a future installment, but I can give you a sneak preview. And that is the another aspect of the story is the Hollywood Young Turks, what were known as the Young Turks angle, because they were very much a, uh, the young Hollywood stars who were also very much a part of the Laurel Canyon scene. Peter what what year was that when the, when the Young Turks... Uh, had their uh, bones. Uh, it's like from 1965 on. Uh, it was you know uh, Peter Fonda, Bruce Dern, uh, Jack Nicholson, Warren Beatty, um, uh, Jane Fonda. Well, she wasn't a young Turk. I guess she would be a Turkette or something. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, there's this whole group of people that, that also can. And Peter Fonda had a place there. Dennis Hopper did. Uh, you know, uh, Sal Minio lived right at the mouth of the canyon. So there's this whole little clique of, of young Hollywood actors who were making the, the, the scene on the Sunset Strip Clubs and were living in Laurel Canyon and, and making movies in Laurel Canyon. I don't know if we talked about that last time. Uh, the movie, the, the monkeys movie. Oh yeah, had, and, when Nicholson's in there. Yep. Yeah, and and the trip and Easy Rider. Those movies all sort of came out of Laurel Canyon. They were they were very much part of the scene. And I've been looking into their past, and some of them have a, even more 
more troubling uh, connections than the than the uh, the rock stars that they were hanging out with. I'll give one example: Bruce Dern. Uh, yeah. He co-starred with Bond in the trip, and you know he was very much a part of that scene. And uh, his uh, uncle on his mother's side, his mother was uh, Jean McLeish. His uncle was Archibald McLeish, who was Skull and Bones, class of 1915, the year before Prescott Bush, who was class of 1916. And uh, his um, grandfather on his dad's side was a former Secretary of War, which was what we call the Secretary of Defense, yep. slightly more honest times. <laughs> and his godparents were uh, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt and um, uh, Adelaide Stevenson, the guy who twice lost to uh, Eisenhower. Eisenhower, yeah. So, I mean, his family, he, he, he comes directly from this whole of, you know, Skull and Bones and, and Department of Defense and I mean, just, so and that's true also of several of the others, so it, it was not just the musicians who had gathered in the canyon who were the offspring of the military intelligence comp, it was all the young Hollywood actors that they were hanging out with as well so I mean, you know, at some point you guys say, how, how many coincidences does it take to make a conspiracy you know, and, and <laughs> To me, I think we passed the threshold a long time ago on this story, you know. So that would be, I guess, my answer. <laughs> yeah, it's it's way too much for me to accept as, as all coincidental. Um, I'm just going to enter this now. Uh, this is about you, not about me. Uh, although I was there, and you know. <clears throat> anyway, I mean, I, you know, I saw it all. I, I went through a, a, a bunch of stages. Um, but the one thing that. Um, I now question when I look back, and when we talk about it now, is that um, the whole introduction also of Ellis, I think, is very, very interesting. Um, uh, Ken Kesey, who I revered as a writer, you know, he's the author of uh, Sometimes a Great Notion and Went Below the Cuckoo's Nest. <clears throat> of course, he is the subject, Tom Wolfe's uh, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. But when they had acid, and it was not against the law because nobody knew they had it, although, of course, it is suspected that the Army intelligence created it. And, of course, they, you know, they, they had the, uh, the concerts on the coast where the Warlocks played, who later became um, the Grateful Dead. Yeah, nice and, name, huh? <laughs> yeah, okay, there you go. And then, of course, uh, the famous trip on the bus with uh, Neil Cassidy driving as they go across the coast, uh, and they uh, eventually end on the East Coast, and they were talking to uh, Leary and then came back. But, you know, the one thing, and I don't want to go into it now, so I'll just leave it there. But, I mean, if we can go to that later on about the whole introduction to LSD, that's interesting, too. But let me go to that. Oh, yeah. And the fact that it, it remained legal for as long as it did during that time, you know, when there was supposedly all this harassment and everything going on, and yet LSD remained perfectly legal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the cops couldn't arrest you because there was no law against it. You couldn't smoke a joint, but you could drop acid. You know? <laughs> well, you get your ass busted for smoking a joint, but you're doing acid, they just let you alone. Yeah, I mean, that's... Yeah. that's Seems very odd, doesn't it? In retrospect, yeah. that they wouldn't have immediately clamped down on that. I mean, yeah, and it, it, that's why I'm saying that uh, I think uh, you're going to come to that also at another time. But I, you know, just to, to kind of whip the appetites of people, that's the one thing that I think really bothered me how straight up Keezy was. But and of course, because Keezy 
I worked on a psych ward, uh, which gave him the fodder for the book, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Right. He also studied at Stanford with his, the Stanford Research Institute, and I can't hook them both up, but it's kind of interesting as well. Um, but that for another day. Now, we got a comment. It said, I am fascinated regarding the links between these people. Someone knew someone who worked with someone else, and in the end, there are often bad endings to people, mysterious deaths and such. The fact that so much of the music was so good, agreed, so brilliant in many cases, agreed, was the music itself generally contrived as some part of some part of some plan, in quotes, to change society. I would love to hear more about the parents or other family members, even in some cases the celebrity themselves, being involved in intelligence. What has been the overall goal, goal and uh, has it been met? Uh, and lastly, was Manson suspect as well as um, strange intelligence connections. All right, that's a lot of stuff and probably not all for this moment. But let's do this. First of all, I thought the music was excellent. I think it was. I, I, I firmly believe it. I, I still have the records in my collection. I mean, I, uh, yeah, it's, it was, uh, it, it, I mean, for, for a very long time after that, there wasn't anything worth listening to. I mean, the music of the 70s and 80s was pretty much wretched, you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, I think the music was 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 very good, and, and it, it stood the test of time. Um, to what degree it was contrived, I I couldn't really tell you, but uh, you know, I would definitely agree that the, that the music was uh, it, it, it it definitely stood up to the test of time, in my opinion. In mine too, and again, but you know what this goes back to. And, Dave, I don't want to spend any time on this. If sometime in the future you want to do something, that's fine, because we can't open this oyster right here. But, I mean, we, we have treated the, the uh, issue, whether or not the Beatles were handled, by a composer of some note who has gone, like, below the uh, you know radar screen, and that would be Theodore Adorno. And um, whether or not they got together in England, because Adorno uh, supposedly uh, uh, fleed Germany, prior to World War II, and John Coleman and his conspirators' uh, hierarchy and some others uh, put the Beatles with Adorno together so that they were trying to get something done. Now, that's like for another time. Just leave that where it is. But the fact that there is some kind of suggestion that rock and roll was being handled in some uh, some fashion. But, like again, not for another time. Uh, um, but moving on to another question... Uh, and, and let me get back to this again. Okay. What about, uh, if we can, um, as far as you've gone with this, let's just kind of flip over because there's a couple of people that want to know how much Manson had a hand in what was taking place in that particular era. Well, he was, he was very much a part of the scene. Uh, I mean, virtually, virtually all of the the big name musicians that came out of there in that era knew him. Uh, most of them don't like to admit it, but uh, you know some of them have. Uh, one of the guys from Can Heat admitted that, that they used to party with the, the Manson family. You know he auditioned for Neil Young. He auditioned for Jerry Garcia of The Grateful Dead. He, he uh, auditioned for Dennis Wilson. He was recorded by Dennis Wilson. He was recorded by Terry Melcher, Doris Day's son, who was a uh, producer of the uh, <coughs> the Birds and various other bands. And, I mean, he hung out at. He was known to hang out at Moss's house. He's been reported to have been at uh, John Phillips' house. Some of his followers. 
reportedly lived at the log cabin that uh, Frank Zappa was the ringmaster at, you know, in late in 1968, according to Ed Sanders' book, uh, The Family. Uh, I mean, he was, he was all over the place. His fingerprints are all over that whole music scene. Um, you know, I mean, you, you find references to him constantly throughout. He, he or, or one of his followers, particularly uh, Bobby Beausoleil, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it. We were discussing that earlier. But uh, <laughs> uh, he's a beautiful son, by the way. Um, he was very much a part of the scene as well. He actually lived in Laurel Canyon for a while and was the original rhythm guitarist for the band that became Love when they were known as the Grassroots. Okay. And uh, Tex Watson, who who was the, the leader of the expedition that went to the uh, Yellow Drive house, he lived uh, in Laurel Canyon on Wonderland Avenue. And yeah, I mean they're just they're just everywhere. They're they're all over the story. You can't it, it's unavoidable. You just you just keep bumping into one or more members of the Manson family around every turn, pretty much. It is interesting, though, because it, it almost seemed, though, he was at least dignified to some extent as having a little talent. I don't think, I mean, from what I can remember, and this is a long time ago, I mean, the Wilsons from the Beach Boys weren't necessarily blowing him off. I'm just sure that, you know, when he came into your uh, living room, it was, he was kind of scary. <laughs> uh, I would imagine, except that he, he always brought a huge gaggle of women with him, you know, and, you know, from the descriptions uh, that I've read, I mean, he just he just basically brought this troop of, of young girls with him that would just pretty much do and and service anyone that, that you know Manson wanted to get on the good side of. So, you know. All right. So in other words, he had a way of uh, he had a calling card, didn't he? He had a calling card, yeah, a calling card that was very attractive to Dennis Wilson and his two uh, sidekicks, Terry Melcher and Greg Jacobson, uh, which was, yeah, these just young, attractive, adoring women who would uh, cater to their every whim. All right, I just want to let people know, too, we've been talking with Dave McGowan. Um, The website, Dave, is davesweb.cnchost.com. But, you know, it always, I mean, the link always goes up. Uh, your link always goes up with the audio. Not a big deal. But if you're listening right now, if you want to do that, you go to davesweb.cnchost.com. You can pick up all the newsletters that are right there at the top. The, the uh, website's also known as the Center for an Informed. For what? An informed what? America. America, okay. That's where my print is stopped. <laughs> oh, classy, isn't it? All right, no problem with that. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, there's a couple, I uh, should have parts five and six up in the next uh, few days, hopefully. They're, near, they're nearing completion, so. Well, I don't think anybody's in a hurry. It's almost, you know, he's out of time. He's out of time. And all of a sudden, just give me a chance. I got to read through. I got a lot of material to dig through and organize and, you know. I want to make sure I get it right. I mean, there's so much there's so much bad information in all the mainstream accounts. I mean, you you read something in one book, and the next day you read a, a different version in another book that completely contradicts the the first version that you read. And I mean, trying trying to sort out the truth from the Hollywood mythology and and legend making is uh, <laughs> a 
want to make sure I get it as accurate as possible. You know, I say I don't want to waste a whole bunch of minutes. Somebody got something else from two people, three people that kind of resonate with the same question. I'm going to throw that to you. And I don't know, you know, I don't know what we're going to have this time. But, I mean, that's why I say the series goes on. And as long as you're okay at your convenience, we can go on and, and you know, delve into some of these things. But, um, you know, I mean, when I would, you know, when all this stuff was going on, I'm like 17 years old, but I'm following it to the Daily News, you know, when I lived in the New York area. And you look at this stuff, and, you know, to this day, you know, I try to think back as to how I just, like, assimilated all this stuff, or, I, or maybe I just, just offed it, because it was so bizarre. And, and, of course, the Vietnam thing was going on. I, I really do believe that all of us just took, took this stuff in, we threw it away, and we went on with our lives because there's a world we were going to get deep into this and not get brain damage. So, you know, I, I'm just amazed at all that passed through us at that time. As much as people today, you know, yak about martial law and police state, that all might be happening. But, you know, we really have to take a look. I don't know how you feel about this, but, I mean, I look back to 75, and I'm like, I don't even know how we get through this. <laughs> I mean, do you, you, I mean that, if you want to crack in on that, by all means, but, I mean, it can get a lot stranger. <laughs> yeah, it's a very strange world we live in. Uh, as I, yeah, the older I get, the more I realize that. And the, the deeper you dig down these rabbit holes, you more, the more you realize that it's uh, definitely is a very strange. I, mean, I, I don't know that anything. There's very little that seems that, that can shock me anymore. You know, it's. Uh, yeah, I, uh, you know the, the weird thing about the the whole hippie movement is that it just seemed to happen so fast, you know. And I mean, how, how does that happen? That you know, I mean, it, it had to start somewhere, you know. I mean, how how do all these kids just all of a sudden end up adopting this this completely different lifestyle? That you know, I mean, different hairstyles, different clothing styles, different music, and I mean, how did that how did that just just happened so quickly that the, the, all these kids just, just all of a sudden woke up one day with long hair and, and bad clothes, you know. But Dave, the thing is, we, that happened without VHS, I mean, uh, whatever it is, the hell it's called. Uh, you know, I don't know. What's all the rock and roll things on, you know, on the uh, yeah, MTV, okay? Uh, this happened without MTV, without BET, and all these videos. This happened without wall-to-wall 24-7 TV. This happened without that. That's the thing I think is most interesting is because they didn't have that medium to get to everybody all the time where the mom and dad were, were watching what you were watching on TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, we weren't, we weren't, uh, we definitely weren't all tied in as much to this, yeah, to, uh, yeah. to where we're all, the, the entire country, every every remote corner of the country is now fed the same daily diet of, of crap, you know, from our news and entertainment media and, and through the Internet and whatnot. And yet it still just sprung up. I mean, just it just just out of nowhere all of a sudden we had this this whole what 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 very quickly became the the, the largest countercultural movement in uh, in American history just sort of out of nowhere almost, you know, and it, it is very odd that, 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 it, that it just didn't happen like that, you know, I mean, <laughs> why, you know, why, why this sort of this, such a drastic countercultural movement, you know, I mean, what, what, you know, where, where everything about them was sort of 
foreign to small town, you know, mainstream America. I mean, everything, their, their look, their, their music, their attitude, you know, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's odd. It's very odd in retrospect. That, that, yeah, and, and let's hopefully revisit that in time to come. We've got a couple of comments. One from Carpet Max said, if he's got kids, married and bored and turned collectivist. Well, I can't argue with that. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Also, we got another comment. Doesn't Shirley McLean have nebulous uh, family, military origins, or connections? Uh, Shirley McLean is uh, Warren Beatty's brother, obviously, and he was he was again one of the the young Turks uh, that hung out with that crowd. His father was supposedly a like a psychiatrist, psychologist, or a psychology professor, or something like that. But I mean, he, they, he moved around in uh, in an unusual way. I think he was like born in like uh, Alexandria, Virginia, I think. And I'm they, surprised. Yeah, and then they moved to Norfolk, Virginia. You know, the 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 largest naval base in the world. And then they, after that, they moved to I think Arlington, Virginia, like the home of the Pentagon. And so you know, I mean, his whole early life was spent hopping around between these little, you know military intelligence suburbs of, of Washington DC. So mm-hmm. even though you know, his father his father didn't officially work for for the military, but you know, you gotta sort of a lot of times you gotta kinda of read between, between the lines. lines. <laughs> One of the things that surprised me really about this story is that so many of these people's military intelligence connections are right out there up front because usually you do have to read between the lines. I mean CIA and all its affiliated uh, spy organizations, they're secret organizations, you know, they operate in secrecy, that's by definition, so they don't advertise, you know, their membership, so, you know, usually you have to read between the lines and, and look, you know, where did this person grow up, or, you know, where, you know, where, where did the family move around to, and what circles did they, you know, travel and whatnot, but, you know, so Warren Beatty's kind of one of those cases where, and Julie McLean also, obviously, because she's his uh, sister, um, it's one of those where you kind of have to read between the lines, but, you know, the, the amazing thing to me is is that, is that so much of the story, you don't have to read between the lines, and if there's that many people there that, that have open military and intelligence connections, then how many of the other ones had hidden, you know, military and intelligence connections? Um, I tell you what, you know, we got two heavy duty questions. I'm going to ask you to just give, if you could, a, um, a cursory answer to them both. We can visit this later on because I think you're, you're going to, you know, you're going to come upon this if you haven't already, but we'll, you know, we'll revisit this. One message was, uh, they had uh, mind control subliminal psychic messages put on records. Uh, Preston Nichols says this, uh, he participated in this at Montauk. All right, that's one statement. Uh, is there a possibility, whether it was um, backmasked or whatever, that there were certain things in there? I don't know. I mean, are we looking at something that was triggering to uh, a generation that might have been medicated to some extent? It's possible. I have not really looked in any great depth at that uh, aspect at all. I, I remember when I was a kid, the big backward masking controversy when I was I don't know, probably in my young teens or something. I remember there was a big thing about it. Uh, you know, uh, in Led Zeppelin's records. I, I, actually, I can remember me and my friends spinning, a, trying to spin a Led Zeppelin, <laughs> you know, old 33 and a third uh, 
vinyl record backwards on it. <laughs> I can talk. <laughs> to see if we could hear, you know, and a Beatles one too, to see if we could hear uh, Paul's dad or whatever the hell was supposed to <laughs> I know, I know. I remember doing it, yeah, but I, you know, as an adult and, you know, as, as a researcher, I have not really, uh, no, I haven't really looked into that aspect of it. All right. Um, and that, that might come in time. And also, I do find it interesting, though, that they would plant that stuff in there, but that might have been a really great marketing scheme later on to get everybody to buy back albums. We, have to, we can't overlook the fact that that was a really good marketing gimmick. Yeah, I remember Stairway to Heaven had supposedly had that. I can't remember. You, what. my sweet Satan. Yeah. So what do I? I don't. I remember playing. <laughs> and yeah, I can't hear it. and uh, Revolution Number Nine or something. Yep. Was supposed to say, yeah. Harry Paul. Or Always dead. <laughs> yeah. Well, we checked into it. I remember checking into it. I don't remember if we if we heard anything or not. It probably depended on our chemical balance at the. The thing is, some of us never checked out. <laughs> okay, we got we another good one for you here. This will only take about three hours to discuss. Uh, I, I love it. I wish these people would call in, but they don't. Anyway, I'm okay. Whether they're shy or they're at work, it's fine. Boy, I tell you, this is a good one. Are either of you familiar with the lore that early in the Third Reich, German scientists experimented with Nepalese and other indigenous shamanistic chants, combining them with repetitive percussive patterns in a quest to develop early NLP, which would be neuro-linguistic programming, and brainwashing techniques. It was suspected that they created proto-rock and rock and roll music before being ordered to shelve their findings. Might their research and results have been British war booty for Tavistock to perfect? Actually, Dave, that, that makes a lot of sense if, if you've come across some of the information that I've come across, you know, the listeners have. But, you know, this is what I was saying to you about whether or not it was true about Adorno and the Beatles. Had they crafted music along, you know, the lines of trying to influence uh, young people, and I would, I would have to say this right now, with the, with the longevity that hip hop has had, along with a rap. I mean, I got to think that there's something in there. So I, I won't say anything more. You know where I'm going with that. Do you want to address whether or not, you know, they've broken some things that that deal with, you know, alpha beta uh, states of the brain? I. I couldn't really speak to that. I'm not familiar with the specific line of research that she, uh, that they, or, uh, or he or she or whatever, yeah, she or whatever was referencing there. You know, I mean, I know that 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 the CIA and probably British intelligence did, you know, uh, from what I understand, get a hold of all of the uh, secure all of the the records of all of the experiments that were conduct, uh, you know, conducted on. Uh, the terminal, the so-called terminal experiments and whatnot that were conducted by uh, by Nazi researchers, and you know a lot of that had to do with uh, human tolerances, you know, human tolerance, various forms of torture and pain, and just how far you could push a person um, in various ways uh, before they died. You know, as far as sleep deprivation and food deprivation and and you know sensory overload and all, all of these different heinous things that they did to see how long the people could endure it before they actually died. And, of course, I mean, all of that research has, has applications both in mind control and in uh, interrogations, um, in both cases of which you want to, you know, torture your victim. 
as close as you can to the point of death without actually killing them, because if you kill them, then you've lost your your subject, you know, or your source of information. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I have no doubt that they do indeed have all of that information and, and that it's utilized in, in various unsavory ways, but I'm not familiar um, specifically with the, with the line of research that she was uh, discussing or, you know, uh, the uh, you know technicalities of of uh, you know music containing uh, you know proponent rhythms or, or or you know backwards uh, mass uh, instructions or, or anything like that. It's a little beyond my level of expertise. No, and, and none of us really know. And actually, I would say that um, they're ahead of the curve. Only that um, they've heard other, I guess, uh, individuals. Just who spoke to that, that is not necessarily where you were going. That might be indeed where you wind up. But, um, um, and yeah, I don't want to jump you with that, but there seems to be something going on, and yet none of us really know, and nobody's really come out to say, look, you know, what's going on here is definitely a trigger. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, uh, what's this guy, Augustus, uh, the big acid guru of the 60s up in San Francisco that had all the military and intelligence connections and it served as an intelligence officer and his, his family history contained like all these, you know, high-ranking officials and whatnot. Uh, Augustus uh, Stanley, was that Owsley? Owsley, okay. Yep. Yeah, he, he was, uh, didn't he, he started out, I, I believe, as the Grateful Dead uh, sound technician. You know, he was on the sort That's of, right, that's right. He yep. sort, of, sort of shaped their sound, and he had a background in, you know, psychological warfare and intelligence operations, and then he became the, you know, the big uh, acid producer and distributor that, that uh, showed up routinely at uh, all the big rock festivals and handed out, you know, like, you know, massive quantities of free free drugs to people. And, yeah, so he started out as a... And there were other, as I recall from Martin Lee's book, Acid Dreams, I believe there were other people that were involved as sound technicians for some of these various bands that had, like, these intelligence uh, connections. So, you know, it is quite possible that they, that they were tailoring a specific sound, you know, or a specific pattern of sounds or specific rhythms or... You know, whatever the case may be, but you know, again, I I just don't have the technical knowledge to to really address that in in any sort of you know scientific way. No, and you need not. But it'll be interesting as you go, uh, you know, through your research, whether that'll come up, and not even if you want to delve in that, but if you actually, you know, that that does bring up more or less where uh, uh, where your research leads you. Um, I think we can admit, though, uh, David, and we're running, you know, about three minutes left to go that certainly this didn't happen on itself, did it? I mean, you know, I, I can't speak for the music during the 30s and the 40s and what they were hoping to get out of that, but, I would, but I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, perhaps 60s and 70s music probably had some kind of mm, embedded edge that music before it did not have. What's your thoughts on that? Well, it certainly was a revolutionary new sound. I mean, it didn't sound like anything that it, that had come along before. It was, you know, it wasn't like a continuation of what had previously been considered, you know, rock music. You know, in the, you know, Elvis Presley, Everly Brothers kind of mold. You know, so uh, yeah. I mean, it was it was a completely new and different sound, and it was a completely new and different look that the, the, the hippies and flower children had, and 
you know, there's this, this uh, simultaneous mass infusion of drugs, you know, into the counterculture. Just uh, there was a lot of things that, that were completely, you know, new and different that all sort of came together all at the same time, which is, you know, very odd. You know, that, <laughs> to my mind, that, that all of these these uh, elements would just sort of spring up, you know, simultaneously all at the same time and, and across, you know, pretty much across countries. At a time like, you know, as we were discussing earlier, we weren't sort of all plugged into this sort of mass consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask you this. If you were to look at one group that you felt probably had the most influence in, in, in politically affecting rock and roll listeners' um, minds, what, what group would you think? Top of your, off the top of your head. I guess it would probably be the Beatles, although I, I, you know, I haven't really looked into the whole British invasion angle, so I can't, you know, I don't really know much about them, but, uh, I would say probably the Beatles, you know, and specifically John Lennon. Yes. And, and that would bring us also to another very interesting situation with what or happened. Maybe Bob Dylan. I don't But no, probably the Beatles. But go ahead. <laughs> okay, well, no, it's just that, well, we're going to pick this up because we're out of time. But, I mean, you look at what happened to uh, Lennon. Is that also a coincidence? Listen, uh, thanks, Dave McGowan, for being with us. Folks, you can go uh, to his website. And you'll see the link on my site. And you can plug in to see what's going on here. Dave, thanks a lot for being with us. And we'll talk around in the near future, bro. Definitely, yeah. I mean, there'll be uh, many more parts going up. And uh, if you see something you want to talk about, I'll be more than happy to come back. Remember those words. We'll be back. Thank you very much, Dave. All right. right. Bye-bye. All right, welcome to Think or Be Eaten, and we have with us somebody who's not been around since probably two Julys ago when he was part of what we did, that 13-hour marathon called Nola Palooza, and that would be Dave McGowan. His website is up there, folks. You don't have to go through it right now. Uh, and also, he is the author of three books, which these titles now all of a sudden, I think, become very much more um, germane to what has been going on this November. We'll talk about that lately. But remember, he's the author of Program to Kill. These are the short titles, um, Learning the F Word and Derailing Democracy. Did I get that all right, Dave? Uh, Close, Understanding the F Word. Yeah, you know what happened is, and this is what I was telling you, I, I, I did my scroll shorthand before we came on, and I went back to your website to take a look at, at the F Word, and I didn't have that. And I faked it uh, because that link is down right now. So it's Understanding the F Word. Um, and we won't make that mistake again, so thank you. But Program to Kill, I think, also becomes very, very uh, prominent um, today and, and probably uh, very uh, much at the core of our discussion. But I wanted to – I got in touch with you because I got on with Andy Colvin and Adam Gorightly, um with regard to Manson. And because the Laurel Canyon series that, uh, that you still continue to this day, and you warned me this might happen back in July of 08 <laughs> – it's still going on. Uh, yeah, it's still going. Well, here's what I want to ask you top down. And now we've had all these years of hindsight and whatever we might have picked up that might be good information about whatever happened then in, eight, in 1969. In 1869, I wasn't around. But um, 
first of all, I want to ask you this, and, and somebody had emailed me this, and I never really thought about it in that sense, and then I started thinking in that context, and it seemed like it might be relevant, so let me ask you, for whatever it means, is it possible, one, that Manson was mind-controlled, and two, that he was more patchy than perp? What about that? Uh, I would tend to agree with both of those assessments, actually. Yeah, I think... Uh... I think there was definitely someone pulling his strings um, just as much as he was pulling the strings of his uh, followers. Um, yeah, I think he was just, uh, you know, he, he was definitely wasn't the guy sitting at the top of the pyramid. You know, I mean, he, he had people under him who he was certainly manipulating, but I think at the very same time he himself uh, was very much uh, being controlled. And I also have come more and more uh, over to the opinion that uh, that he was, uh, he and, him and his family were very much patsies uh, with regard, uh, especially to the, well, probably to both the Tate and the LaBianca killings, but uh, certainly to, in, in regards to the Tate killings, I think at the very least there were, actors involved and there's evidence that uh, if the family members were on the scene they weren't uh, the last ones on the scene so yeah I would uh, I would tend to agree with both of those uh, points of view even though I was I had just turned 18 and I didn't really care much about you know newspapers and stories and media except what what the sports pages uh, carried but you couldn't you couldn't avoid that whole story about what was going on in Los Angeles. I might say that the murders and what eventually became known as the whole, you know, Manson posse thing really was everywhere you looked. It was prurient. It was salacious. It was violent. And it was still a mystery. And it probably captured with the help of the media, uh, a lot of people's attention who might not, not normally uh, follow the news. And even from just a distance on the periphery, you know, I was trying to make sense of it for as much time as I spent doing that, Dave. And I, I said to myself, how can they, how can they indict him for murder? He didn't do it. They couldn't put him at any of the scenes. It didn't make sense to me at 18. It doesn't make sense to me now. What about that whole connectivity that was created for us to, to swallow? In essence, I would think if it weren't a rigged deal, you couldn't indict him for anything, or could you? Um, not really, no. I mean, that, that, the, the, one of the fascinating things about the Manson case uh, in regards to, to mind control, with the first thing you brought up, um, which uh, makes sense that it would be the first thing, you know, you bring up in relation to the Manson case, because the Manson, the prosecution of Charles Manson himself was basically uh, a mind control-based, prosecution. I mean, that, that was the basis on which he was prosecuted, because it was acknowledged that he was not a participant uh, in, in any of the killings, either the five victims at the uh, Tate household or uh, Rosemary and Lino LaBianca, that he was not, not only was he not a participant, he was not even at the scene when the killings occurred. According to the official story, he was back at the ranch on both occasions. So, uh, you know, and these weren't, uh, they weren't portrayed as, uh, like, contract killings. Um, they were basically, it was, the, the prosecution was based on the fact that Manson had essentially ordered 
his followers to commit these crimes and that they were essentially powerless to resist uh, those orders. Um, you know, because other than that, there's really no basis for Charles Manson to have been prosecuted, like you say. I mean, I could tell you, uh, I could tell you right now to go out and kill somebody, and if you go out and do it, that's on you. That's not on me. You know, I mean, just telling somebody to do something is not the basis no. for a, for a first degree murder prosecution. They they base that prosecution on the premise that he completely controlled his followers. So without actually mention, you know, specifically using the terms mind control, uh, that's what that entire prosecution was based on. So, so the irony might be then that the mind control that we, I think, rightfully believe he was under, he, in fact, was accused of perpetrating upon his followers. Very much so, yeah. I mean, that's that's the only way that he could have been convicted, you know, because, um, yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, it, it's not enough for him just to have suggested to his followers that they do that. I mean, in order for him to, to be convicted of first-degree murder and sent to death row, I mean, they had to make the case that his word was, was uh you know like the word of god that they had no choice but to follow his command so it was uh it was very much a a, a kind of a precedent setting trial actually that uh it's not really recognized as that but it basically set the precedent that someone could be prosecuted for that had no physical connection to the crime could be prosecuted and convicted of first-degree murder based on the influence that they wielded over others. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's very much, I mean, mind control is, is very much a part of the Manson case, even in the official story, even though they don't use that terminology. But isn't it interesting, though? I mean, mind control, and if you use the words MKUltra, among others, most people today in the streets will just laugh at you. And, and maybe back in the 50s and 60s when this first came out, there would be this um, dissonance, cognitive dissonance not to believe it, but there were a lot of veterans that came home, and I'm sure were aware that this went on, although they wished not to be involved with it and just wanted Korea and everything to go away. So it was very real, but still in all, people kind of poo-poo that as, as a real operation having said that one what is your thoughts about manson being absolutely a handled uh, spirit uh i believe that there's little doubt of that i mean whether you could uh put together a, a you know a concrete case uh, to prove that, you know, that's that's another matter entirely. But I mean, just based on on all the circumstantial evidence and my own uh, my own research and, and uh, knowledge of of the subject, I you know I find it virtually impossible to believe that he was not being uh, his strings were not being pulled by higher ups. All right, then, what about those that were in his group. Um, I had done something with Adam Go Rightly in back of his book, The Shadow Over Santa Susanna, 
where I asked them more about the female principles because in a way it's not really talked about that much, although it's kind of come a little bit to the fore again, although apparently I'm sure wasted on most of the generations alive today. Um, you know, that, that Fromm died and Sarah J. Moore was released. I mean, there's this kind of resurfacing, if you will, for at least a short period of time that brings us back to those murders 40 years ago. But what's the chances uh, that those females and Tex and whoever else might have been under the same mind control that Manson was under? Uh, I, I, I think that, yeah, the whole lot of them were, uh, were controlled to, to varying degrees. And I, I doubt that Charlie was sort of the only controller in the group. I think there are indications that, uh, Tex Watson may have, uh, you know, played almost as, as, uh, large a role in that regard as, uh, as Manson. And I think Bobby Beausoleil also, uh, was uh was as much controller as controlled you know i mean i think there's just like this whole sort of web of, of control you know with 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 uh most of the women you know being under the control of a few of the dominant men who in turn were were undoubtedly under the control of of other hidden hands and that that's kind of the way i see that whole the whole manson web well do you think given what you said, and I, I don't know, not that you should remember this at, at, at the tip of your fingers necessarily, but do you feel that given what you've written about and what you have absorbed just through reading what we all read, having paid attention, do you believe that we could tell that some were let off the hook uh, with light sentences because they might have been principles? Would Watson perhaps be an example of that? Uh, well, the Watson case was certainly an odd one. Uh, it was handled completely different than than all of the others who were were basically uh, tried as a group, you know, here in uh, L.A. in very high profile uh, trial, one of the most high profile trials ever. Uh, whereas Watson was, was uh, you know, ferreted off to Texas, and I think there were like long delays, I believe, and I, it was there was definitely. He de Watson was definitely given much different treatment than the rest of the uh, quote-unquote family members. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, if that's I mean, is that, is that basically what you were? Yeah, in other words, we, for the intents and purposes of this conversation, we can be suspicious about the justice that was meted out to him and whether or not uh, somewhere that uh, belies that maybe he was a little bit more involved and but playing ball uh, right from the very beginning. Yeah, I would think so, and, um, you know, I, I think uh, Bobby Beausoleil, you know, got got uh, somewhat preferential treatment, you know. I mean, it seems really odd that uh, this guy who was, like, on death row was able to, to uh, score, uh, to compose and record a film score for a Kenneth Anger film, you know I mean? Yeah. <laughs> access to all these instruments and recording uh, equipment and mixing boards and all of this. I mean, how, how the hell does that work, you know? So, yeah, I, I think uh, the people who were more at the top of the food chain uh, were treated differently in their trials and in terms of uh, their incarceration than, uh, than others. I listened to the show maybe over a year ago, 
had written to me something about Manson and, and what she thought might be the case. And, you know, I had not devoted a lot of time prior to that to thinking about it, but reading what she had to say or uh, what she speculated about made a lot of sense because I guess what had happened was she had just encountered a documentary that ran on, you know, whatever cable network and started to think to herself, this guy isn't capable of this stuff. Well, having said that, I, I had to admit that made me think a lot about this, uh, and the, the result of this is, is, is talking to you and to Andy and Adam. But do you believe that, I mean, we, we are led to believe that he had such polarizing, Svengali type of powers, but in essence, from what you've, from what you've researched, what is your belief about just his mental acumen and how much of a uh, influencer he was? Uh, he was well. He he was he was very good at manipulating people. He was very very good, uh, especially with women. And also, I I think he uh, a certain type of 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 woman women uh, you know who were who were particularly vulnerable to his manipulations were what gravitated towards him or what what he was attracted to. And he definitely had a had an ability to sort of get into their minds and and sense you know sort of their fears and their weaknesses and their vulnerabilities and, and to play on those very much so and uh, he was very very good and probably still is uh, from what I hear he still wields a considerable amount of power in prison but uh, yeah I think he was uh, I I don't know whether he was uh, you know, particularly, uh, he was necessarily a uh, uh, incredibly intelligent person. I don't know about that, but he definitely was very, very skilled at uh, at, at sensing and manipulating and and working uh, people's uh, vulnerabilities and insecurities, and of uh, targeting people uh, who would be susceptible to those types of, you know, manipulations. Uh, I don't, I doubt that the people who ended up in his family did so by chance. I mean, a lot of these people were probably people whose, uh, or, you know, almost definitely people whose, uh, whose own early childhood experiences had sort of predisposed them to those types of manipulations. Now, do you believe, um, as it regards the females who seem to be from middle-class homes for the most part, not all of them, but would, not, would have a lifestyle that you wouldn't think would indicate any kind of behavior like this, uh, is it possible that they were also manipulated either by Manson or by whatever, uh, although they could blame it on Charlie? <clears throat> yeah, I, th I think definitely so. Yeah, um, yeah, that was one of the things that I guess was uh, – I was only I was a little little thing at the time. I was like nine when the when the murders happened. But uh, I think one of the, one of the things that I guess really shocked people was that a lot of these women were supposedly very uh, you know girl next door kind of girls. Yeah. You know that had been like uh, class president or whatever, and uh, they just did not seem to be the type that would have drifted into that lifestyle. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I think definitely they uh, 
you know, appearances can be very deceiving. And uh, if you dig into the past of, of a lot of these women, I think you would uh, you would find the same sort of patterns. I know with, with Squeaky Fromm, you know, her father was uh, was reportedly very abusive, and he was uh, very much a part of the uh, military-industrial complex. And you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of common threads in her story. And I'm sure if you if you really poked around into, into most of these uh, girls' uh, backgrounds, you would probably find the very same threads weave through, uh, through their life stories as well. So can we say about Manson, well, I won't, I, I won't color the question. Is there any indication he had a superior IQ, or was it just that he was a very compelling personality and scary enough that people didn't want to cross him? I don't know if there's any particular evidence that he had a particularly high IQ. I know that it's frequently said that Ted Bundy supposedly did. Um, I, I've, I've heard some people say that Manson did or does. Uh, I don't know if there's any, you know, concrete evidence of that or not, but he, uh, he certainly was very charismatic, and he just people gravitated to him, and uh, and you know he drew them into his circle quite easily, and not just the the people that we know of as his family members, but you know in in regards to Laurel Canyon, a lot of the uh, a lot of the uh, musicians who were who who were big names back in the day. Uh, were drawn to him as well, and, and other Hollywood types, and he, you know, he was very well connected in the uh, in the music uh, industry, particularly. So yeah, he definitely um, he, he definitely had a certain charisma and uh, a certain sort of gravitational energy that uh, people wanted to be around him and wanted to do the things that he wanted them to do. Now you've had that Laurel Canyon series um, that's on your website. And it's uh, extensive to say the least, and certainly not finished. And you once said, maybe halfway jokingly at the time, back those that July '08, that this may never end, and it looks like it may never. And it's not because you're trying to make something uh, extend that isn't worth it, but because it is that much of a, a labyrinth. Yeah, I actually kind of got burned out on it myself. It's been going on so long uh, to the extent that I felt like I needed to take a break, and I kind of branched off. And the last uh, three or four months, I've actually been off in a, another, well, I mean, kind of is another direction and kind of isn't. Uh, it's, it's weird. I've, I've done three radio interviews this week, um, one specifically on the Laurel Canyon, uh, this one on Manson, and the other one on the uh, Apollo moon landings, which seems like three completely different subjects, but they all happened, you know, like in, in the same... Uh, you know, the same little limited time frame, weirdly enough. I mean, the, the first Apollo landing came less than three weeks before uh, the back-to-back Tate and LaBianca killings, you know, in July and August of 1969, which is also what the Laurel Canyon story is. So all of these things are actually, you know, very closely tied together, weirdly enough. So, um, Well, I, 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 let me ask you this. Uh, yeah, you said you were younger then, and, and, and you take a different perspective, and that's good. I'm, I'm glad you have that. Um, I look at it from somewhere else, and I had just done a couple of shows speaking to at least one gentleman that was in my cohort, which would mean graduating high school in 69 or uh, 68, and taking a look, like you said, I mean, it seemed like just for the sake of timelines, 
that maybe somewhere around, I mean, it had all been building up, Haight Ashbury and all that through the 60s. But we seem to have hit a high watermark, ironically, about a week or two after the, uh, the Tate Lobianco murders with Woodstock. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, everything came to a head right then. It, it, yeah, exactly. The, the, the Tate and LaBianca murders, the, uh, the first Apollo moon landing, and yep. then the Woodstock, which was sort of a culmination of the whole Laurel Canyon slash Haight-Ashbury, you know, hippie flower child movement. It all, yeah, it all came together right in that same, I mean, literally within a few weeks. It's uh yeah, there was just a lot of stuff happening right then, and, wasn't there? And, yeah, and, and let me let me take a little bit further because what I'm thinking is is that whatever went on, as far as psychological ops, um, run by obviously our people, whatever branch of the government doesn't matter. But there were a lot of ops that were run in the 70s because then you get to 70, you have Kent State, and that just drives everybody home off the protest trail. Forget that. But then we have some other major psychological operations as we would look at them one of the latter ones probably would be the whole jonestown thing where more and more is coming out about that and the fact that this you know that that jones himself was definitely an operative so i'm looking at the 1970s saying what exactly got done then because it seemed to me that there was a lot at at work there uh and you know from from whatever took place in 69 and then flipping over to 70, and they crushed the protest movement in 70. And then all of a sudden, like, it seemed like everybody, well, that generation, including myself, backed off, tried to get on with what they were doing, but it didn't seem like the government was necessarily uh, willing to rest and not tap into certain other, the psyche of America, I have no idea. I know you don't either. We have no idea what was going on then. But something was going on because, like I said, a lot of things went on in the 70s. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Like you said, Jonestown and uh, also the uh, the SLA, the whole SLA kidnapping of Patty Hearst uh, weirdness that went on, followed by the big shootout in, in uh, right here in L.A. and burning the house down. And, uh, you know, that, that uh, there's no doubt in my mind that that, that was all a, a black op as well. I, I the... the uh, the Manson killings and the SLA fiasco were very closely linked. Actually, I think they, they were sort of a one. One of the purposes, I believe, of the, of the Manson thing was to uh, to sort of uh, cast a very dark light on the whole sort of hippie commune uh, idea. And the, the family was very much presented as a, a hippie commune, and you know, this was the the dark side of the the free love uh you know peace movement and whatnot and in that same regard i think that the sla was meant in, in part uh to discredit the more radical groups like uh sds and the weather underground and whatnot and I, th- I think both of those were were very much intended to uh sort of drive uh the final stake into the heart of the uh you know, that whole spirit of the 60s. Um, and Jonestown, too, just, so, you know, to some extent. You know, that was another, uh, uh, you know, free love or whatever sort of comp communal thing gone bad, supposedly. <laughs> so, yeah, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of weirdness. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. 
and, and even the release of LSD, which, of course, there were no laws against because, you know, law enforcement didn't know it existed, and yet, obviously, it was very, well, it became more rampant and went coast to coast. Uh, Kesey writes about it, uh, Wolf writes about it, rather, about Kesey in, in the electroculate acid test. Um, and, and, again, it seems that things started to simmer down at the end of the decade of the 70s, and something else took place. I don't know what that's about. Maybe they came for what they wanted and they got the information they needed for further manipulation. But certainly the 70s, without the war, still saw a lot of very strange things that went on. Uh, yeah, sure did. Uh, and that, that was uh, sort of my coming-of-age decade. My teen years were in the 70s. And uh, it was a very, you know, in retrospect, uh, you know, looking back on it now, much older and wiser. Yeah, it was a very, very, it was a very weird decade. <laughs> there's, no, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, well, the photo you have on your book, understanding the F word, um, is a famous photograph that was on the cover of the Daily News, which still to this day exists as though tabloid in shape. It's not a tabloid. It's a very, it's one of the heavy hitter newspapers left in New York. Uh, that picture of Rockefeller giving a heckler the finger. Yeah. Well. Yeah, I guess that. Yeah, that was in the seventies too. Wasn't okay. it? That was when he was uh, what, like Gerald Ford's running mate or something. All right, like I'm that. gonna I'm gonna throw you at this question as a jump ball. Do with it what you will. I have to laugh. Um, in, in some of the stuff that I've done with with Colvin, especially with the, the whole state of West Virginia, as one of the purlieus of the Rockefeller family. We look at Rockefeller uh, being a vice president unelected to a president, Ford, unelected. So who goes ahead and tries to pop Ford but Sarah Jane Moore? Where did she grow up? West Virginia. Maybe it's a coincidence. But can you understand why anybody would want to pop Ford who probably couldn't, you know, multiply two by three and come out with six? <laughs> but if he goes down, then who becomes our president? And maybe Nelson went to David and the boys and said, listen, can I just be president for like two months? <laughs> Quite, yeah, quite possibly, uh, you know, uh, Ford, Ford had some deep mind control connections himself and CIA connections, you know, from way back. Well, uh, wasn't he also involved in one of the commissions uh, about the JFK assassination? Yeah, he was on the Warren, he, yeah. was, he, was, he was either on the Warren Committee or he was a spokesman or a, no, I think he was actually on the Warren Committee. Oh, no, he was, and he was, yeah, definitely, he did yeoman's duty uh, on the Warren Commission, no doubt about it. Yeah, he's yeah. Ford had definitely had a uh, yeah very uh, very dark past, and uh, yeah, you know, it, it amazed me. You know, but the, one of the things that that I, that I really kind of found amusing was uh, all the outrage in 2000 when uh, Bush pretty pretty much blatantly stole the election, and uh, all these all these people were talking about how. Uh, you know the the nation was was going to hell in a handbasket because we subverted the whole democratic process and we had our first unelected president and, and I'm I'm going what the hell are you people talking about have you have you forgotten Gerald Ford it wasn't all that long ago you know and you know at least Bush actually ran for it and almost won I mean Gerald Ford not a single person cast a vote for this guy and yet he assumes the presidency. You know, with an unelected vice president. So yeah, that was uh, 
and yet there wasn't there wasn't really from what I recall there wasn't really a lot of outrage when uh, Ford took office as yep. you know a completely unelected president. Um, you know that was that was very odd. That was another <laughs> another oddity of the seventies that first the vice president Spiro Agnew was like almost completely forgotten. Now was forced out of office, clearing the way for Nixon to appoint Ford. Then. Uh, Nixon's forced out of office, which Ford then gets to appoint yep. Rockefeller, and then two different people take <laughs> try to take out uh, Ford, which would have given us, you know, two unelected presidents in a row, and yet there didn't there didn't seem to be a much outrage about that at the time. Maybe I'm mistaken. I don't know. No, you were no, a little older. Right. Was there a lot of questioning no. of that at the time? No. In fact. Um it's always the same old story, Dave, and it's understandable, and I'm not making fun of it. I mean, people who are further in their adulthood, who have families, are working, and they're like, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, those of us who might have been 20-something and, um, you know, single without much you could take away from us, um, that, all that protest, like I said, it was, it was like Kent State was a warning, you know, with, with a gun put to your head saying, okay, now you see what can happen to you? And everyone went, okay, okay. So we went on and we kind of groped, uh, you know, or kind of grumbled about it, but that was the end of it. Everybody stopped. I mean, as far as I could see, everybody stopped. And things went on quietly. And then we came into that situation with this ridiculous situation with unelected presidents and vice presidents, and nobody said a thing. No, you're yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And, you know, by the time the 70s had played out, then. You know, 80s brought in the Reagan revolution, and, uh, yeah, I mean, that was this, everything, every vestige of the 60s had been completely wiped out by then, I think. And there was, uh, yeah, the people, there's, uh, you know, you look now, my God, you know, we have, we're waging two simultaneous wars, both of which are wildly unpopular, and yet, there's absolutely nothing out there. There's nothing on the college campuses. There's no marches being organized anywhere in the big cities. I mean, there's just no, there's nothing left, you know? And, and that was all pretty much wiped out by all the weirdness of the 70s, I think. You yeah, know? And, and, you know, we know certain people um, promulgate a lot of um, fear um, with this bit about the police state, blah, blah, blah. And I'm not saying that's not going to happen. I'm sure it's going to happen. But what we're going through right now, and this can change in a blink of an eye, I understand that, just a certain event can do that. However, going through the late 60s through the early 70s, uh, we still have not reached the craziness and the willingness of cops and other people to split heads with nightsticks. Uh, I'm sure that's coming, but we're not right there now. But what we went through, just like you had said, you know, alluding to it either historically or through you know, family members recounting it to you as well, and for whatever you absorbed also growing up, because let's face it, you know, we're all wide-eyed and wondering what's going on. We've not reached that. Uh, it may come, but it's not anything that's like so far. And I'll tell you, Dave, honestly, too, what people have lost sight of, there were bombs going off on campuses like every day. And I would look at the paper early in the morning when I would go to school, and it's like Buffalo, you know, who wants to blow up SUNY Buffalo? And, it, you know, an explosion went up there. And the weathermen that were working in Manhattan – I mean, it was so crazy that I was playing ball at the time, and, and you know, I don't mean to be banal, but 
I mean, I used to go out early to practice just to lay in the outfield and look up at the sky because, you know, the campus was always, like, up in smoke, and there was SDS guys all over the place. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know what's going on here. I just want to hit 300. <laughs> did, did, did those begin as legitimate, you know, grassroots movements, the, the, the weathermen and the SDS, you know, or, or I mean, I, I firmly believe that at, at the very least right. they they were – they were co-opted, yeah, you know, to yeah. a considerable degree. But I mean, were they were they ever? I mean, from it, your viewpoint back then, were, were they ever legitimate, or were they were they pretty much shams from the well, hater? You know, fair question, and I'll tell you from what you know without looking behind the curtain, and I certainly didn't do that in 19 and 20. I thought they were grassroots. In fact, the poor SDS guy, I think he was like a majority of one. <laughs> He was so loyal, and he was so consistent. And I remember uh, when uh, Kent State occurred, uh, I saw a fire at the other end of campus. I'm going, what the hell is going on there? Come to find out that he was handing out pamphlets um, in back of this, what happened at Kent State. And people started lighting bonfires, and some athletes turned on the guy and just beat him into submission. So, I mean, I'm sure that was pretty grassroots, and he didn't understand what was at you know, the very base of all this. So at that time, it seemed very grassroots. Looking yeah. back now, I doubt that it was. But at that point, especially for this poor sucker who had very few in his uh, toes. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I forget what it, I think his name was Stank or something like that. It was like he was so consistent, though. I had to appreciate him because of his devotion. And he was always out there. It's like, dude, forget about it. I've got to go to music class. Okay, fine. And then one day, unfortunately, right after Kent State, I mean, they just beat the hell out of him. And that, that isn't good either. That was what, nineteen like May seventy? Yeah, that was that was a couple of days after the fourth or whatever it was the fifth. School was coming to an end, we had finals, you know, we were still playing ball and this guy was out there doing his thing. So yeah, it was May nineteen seventy and he got he got taken away in an ambulance. I wasn't so sure that was the right thing to do either. Um that was one of those times when I was just glad that school ended. I can go home and just like, you know, turn out the lights in my room because I had no idea what was going on. And the world truly truly seemed like it was going upside down. It was a scary time. I mean, I wasn't in Nam. I didn't want to go to Nam, but I could not make sense. Myself and my buddies, we'd get together and go, what the hell is going on? And nobody knew, you know? Yeah. So, well, anyway, let, let, at this point, um, also let me tell everybody, we're talking to Dave McGowan, uh, and I will say something to you too, Dave. Uh, for as many emails as I get anymore, uh, Dave, you hit a nerve with that uh, – that piece you wrote about the moon landing or the lack thereof. <laughs> what was the title of that? Wagging the what? Uh, Wagging the moon doggy. Yeah, that's 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 actually the one that's that's, and I think it's because I included a lot of uh, images uh, with the post. That's that's what seems to be causing me the most most uh, bandwidth problems and uh, <laughs> keeps dragging my site down. People really seem to. Seem to like that one. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you, all of a sudden I get the spike in emails uh, from people I do trust as having a well-developed brain. They were like, wow, you got to check this out. And it was good. And uh, that's another whole open wound that, you know, of course, happened in the late 60s, 90s, 70s. Um, and also uh, what I want to go to a little bit later is that uh, some of the stuff you wrote with the DC sniper and how you want to look at that now that we're this many years past it and, and Mohammed has met his end. Um, but the website, folks, like I told you, um, will be up along with the links. Um, also, um, some of the stories with regard 
to the DC sniper will be up. I won't put up the Laurel Canyon stuff because obviously, Dave, I mean, you've got so much there. I'm just going to give him one little link and that'll bring him to like that first take that you have on the Laurel Canyon situation. Uh, again, he is the author of Program to Kill, Understanding the F Word and Derailing Democracy. And I tell you what, not that this might be your favorite Christmas gift, but if you have people who get it and you're looking at something to uh, give somebody with, this might not be a bad idea to do it, especially Program to Kill as it relates to what's going on right now with the Fort Hood situation about which we will speak and also the resurrection of the whole D.C. sniper thing, which makes no sense. So think about that. And I tell you, I don't have the glowing um, um, review from somebody who wrote about what you did and said you did it without you know, the hyperbole and all the exaggerations and just call it for what it is. And, uh, and I, I believe they're right. Uh, let me ask you this. Now with the D.C. sniper situation, being brought back into consciousness because of Muhammad's execution and because of what happened at Fort Hood. Uh, are you getting uh, any interest, and it's early yet, in Program to Kill? I, I, I missed the, the last part of that question. Are you getting any spikes in uh, people looking at Program to Kill as far as a book? Um, I don't really know. I don't really have any way to monitor that. I get royalty checks like quarterly every, uh, you know, three months. And, um, it definitely spikes up and down in relation to other things that I have done. Uh, I haven't gotten one recently, so I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure, but, uh, it's quite possible. It's quite possible. I had actually almost forgotten that I even had those, uh, DC Sniper article uh, post on there. I mean, it's been it's been a good many years now, hasn't yeah. it? What, what, when did that happen? Like that 2002 or something? Or? The last one I think you posted was 2003. Yeah, it's been a while. So, but uh, I know people have been rediscovering them on the website because they've been getting emails about them. Right. Okay. Recently, you know, I guess you know people probably go and uh, Google uh, John Muhammad or whatever, and uh, you know they're just discovering them now for the first time, but. Yeah, they've been up there for a long time. <laughs> I can barely even remember what's in some of them, actually. But it's like, what, three or four posts I think I did on that? Yeah, probably five. And uh, that actually would have been included in uh, Program to Kill, except that the book was already out. Um, so I kind of did that as sort of a addendum to right. the book. And, uh, yeah, so that's a good... That's a good a good taste of it. If you if you want to you know get a taste of what kind of material is in the book, you can uh, go on the website, uh, which hopefully will be back up online here in a couple of days, well, and uh, read through those. And um, yeah, I thought that, I thought that was a, a real very significant case because it uh, kind of sort of tried to blur the line between. Um, serial killers uh, and terrorists and uh you know that's kind of kind of along the lines of 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 the book uh in in the way that it presents uh you know the way the way that uh the serial killer label has been sort of used to uh instill fear in people you know and, and it's basically charlie manson's formula of control through fear you know if, if you put enough fear into the people, they will willingly come to Uncle Sam and voluntarily give up their rights, you know, uh, so Uncle Sam can protect them. 
you know, and I think that that's very that's very much one of the factors that's been at play for a long time uh, in regards to serial killers and uh, and terrorists uh, largely fill kind of fill that same role on a, on an international level. Well, if we can if we can turn our sights now uh, to the DC sniper situation now that it's come to some kind of supposed conclusion. Um, and I did a couple of shows when that was happening uh, with my former co-partner. And one of the things I had to laugh about, and that was, you know, not that you have to live in the Northeast, Dave, but if you did live in the Northeast, anywhere along the I-95 corridor, and I spent, you know, about 40 years next to, to that in Jersey, uh-huh. if you had two brothers in a rust bucket car with no back seat, chances are you're going to get pulled over by the troopers on a turnpike or anywhere else. <laughs> and that these characters could go around everywhere in the world and not get stopped. I, you know, it just cracks me up. And I know that's not any kind of indicting evidence that they were allowed to go free. But even when they, was, they were caught, supposedly caught, that whole story about a guy coming into, you know, some rest area on I-70 just past Fredericksburg and calling in that there's this car there. Oh, and, and again, I, I won't make a lot about this, but he, he calls in at 1247 a.m. And whatever, the, the, the law enforcement and the heat doesn't come down to like 317. I'm like, well, what were you guys thinking about? <laughs> All right, I won't say anything more. Now, let me ask you this. Now that you've, you've written the articles, you've seen what's happened lately, whether that means anything or not or whether it's renewed, you're thinking about that whole situation. What do you make? when the smoke clears, of what this whole D.C. sniper thing was about. Oh, God, I'm trying to think in the context of what, what else was going on at the time. Um, I have gotten emails, by the way, from, from um, quite a few people who live in the area and, and have said basically uh, the kind of same kind of things that you just said, and even a, a couple of people who said that the D.C. sniper case was kind of the catalyst for their uh, political awakening because Good. they just right. uh, they, they said they felt like they were like in the twilight zone with the coverage of the case and just how how ridiculous it was to anybody who was familiar with the area and they were like I couldn't believe that all of my friends were seemed to be buying into this you know and so um, yeah for for a lot of people that live there that would that was that that was sort of you know like not like nine one one has been for other people or the siege at Waco or whatever it is you know everyone has their own uh, you know whatever whatever it is that, that that they can personally relate to and realize that they're being lied to you know that that then becomes sort of like a catalyst or an awakening to realize on what a grand scale we're really being lied to. Um, as far as what particular like goals were being pursued through that sniper case, uh, without going back and and really reviewing sort of you know what what else was going on at the time and what how exactly it played out, I don't, I don't know that I could really say at this time. Well, let me ask you this, um, because when I, I in fact I I might have just caught something about it last night, and you know it, it reviewed the fact that. Uh, Muhammad has been supposedly executed, uh, and Malvo is going to be in jail for the rest of his life. And wasn't it like on Veterans Day or the eve of Veterans Day or something too? Or was that yeah. was that like deliberate? I mean, he, he was a veteran, right? Muhammad was. 
Yeah, I mean, supposedly, you know, and again, that's a whole situation with him being with some kind of unit out of Oregon where Sergeant Moose from. Yeah, you know, <laughs> right. and who knows? But what, what, what even was no, he got he was executed on eleven ten. But the thing was, Dave, he was executed at the time nine eleven. Was he really? Yes, he was. I did not know that. No, no doubt about it. And I passed around an email. When this happened, because I got up, I couldn't sleep. I, I guess I got in, you know, here in the office, and I went taking a look around. I saw the Muhammad definitely bought the farm, and I saw the story, and it was like, yes, he was executed at 9, 11 p.m., and I sent out an email immediately to, like, about 30 people going, are you shitting me? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a little odd. That, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, mean, that's, I don't know. I, I'm not a big believer in coincidences in it too much anymore. anymore. I think almost everything happens for a specific or for a variety of reasons, oftentimes, uh, you know, a whole package of reasons. But, uh, yeah, but that's a little too much, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think, you know, when stuff like that happens, it's very hard to believe that it's just, uh, yeah. And then, you know, in close proximity to the Ford Hood thing, and, I mean, yeah, there's just like these times of uh, just high weirdness when, you know, everything, everything well, just seems to go haywire. I, and, and it's not. I mean, it's very carefully planned chaos, uh, I believe. But, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a weird world we live in, isn't it? But, oh, yeah, to say the least. <laughs> and, and when I was watching this, like, I guess, summary um take on the whole issue because now that Mohammed is dead and um, Malvo's behind bars for the rest of his life. Uh, and then they went ahead and they said, and they may be uh, also involved in murders in several other states. And of course they put the map up, the contiguous 48 states and they have these little red blobs in Oregon and Arizona. And I'm like, well, first of all, unless you know that for a fact, throw that stuff out. Secondly, if you're telling me that those murders are unsolved, that's your problem. In other words, all this thing about, well, they might be, is not any further indictment of what they did. You know, yeah. it's, it's almost like they're taking all these murders, throwing them under, you know, this umbrella to be buried along with Muhammad and, you know, Malvo, who will never, you know, probably see the light of day or say a word in, in, into the media. I think he's not allowed to, isn't he, like, barred from the first time? Well, wouldn't you but, bar him too? Sure. But um, yeah, I mean that that that's a, that's another uh, a theme that runs through the program to kill book is uh, this notion that uh, serial killers are 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 sometimes used to sort of clear the books of uh, other unsolved killings. Henry Lee Lucas was the yep. most notorious. I mean, they they literally took the guy on tour around the country, all these different police departments, and, I mean, he just cleared the books for everybody. Pretty well. Oh, yeah, I did all of them. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it's another, it's a very convenient way to, to sweep a lot of other, uh, a lot of other garbage into the rug along, yeah. So, yeah, no doubt about this. That's, that's uh, pretty much of a pattern. Well, now let me ask you this. You've not written on it. You're watching stuff just as we are. And I'm just wondering what's going through your mind as, it, as the information goes through all our minds. I mean, those who, who kind of get it. Now we have a situation at Fort Hood. Yeah. All right. Well, first of all. Um, and the guy's a psychiatrist, isn't that? Don't you love it? That's the, that's the most beautiful part of all, isn't it? But do you see, 
what, what bothers me on top, and let's take it top down if you don't mind. Uh, you got a guy that supposedly didn't raise any flags to the point where he was able to do this, and then after he does the shooting, if he were in fact alone, which I doubt he was, uh, all of a sudden then you go back and you find out, oh, yeah, there were flags all over the place. Dave, what this reminds me of is 9-11 when, you know, the FBI and the CIA had no idea that this was going to happen, and then within an hour had all the perps. You know yeah, I mean? yeah, I... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's another uh, that's another definite pattern that we've seen followed before. I kind of wonder if if maybe this guy, uh, you know, he was supposedly about to be deployed. I kind of wonder if he was sort of being programmed as a as a time bomb, and maybe he just went off a little too soon, you know. <laughs> well, that's a good point. Uh, <clears throat> but it, I, I don't know. That, that's I mean, yeah, that there's a lot of. Uh, I mean, how does a psychiatrist armed with a handgun take shoot take down like fifty people on a military base for crying out loud? Well, I got an email from somebody who's now, I mean, he's retired naval reservist, and I, I, the reason I just I halted there for a second is because actually, when you're a reservist, you're never retired, um, and yeah. you can get called back. And he wonders if that's going to happen. But he wrote me and he said, "Okay, forty three wounded or killed with two semiotic." semi-automatic pistols are you serious uh it's just absurd and and uh and weirdly enough it's linked to the uh virginia tech slangs there you go which is where he came from hassan or whatever came from which was another absurd case where this kid with like no five no formal you know firearms training all of a sudden was like able to not only, you know, operate and reload these handguns as if he'd been born with one in his hand, but fired with just uncanny accuracy. I mean, it's just like, and again, took out, like, how many people with just with armed with a handgun, you know? I mean, it's just, so, yeah, you got these two cases, both equally absurd and both very closely linked, so... um yeah, well, uh, you know, I guess uh, maybe the 70s weren't so weird after all. You know? Well, I think I think what might be happening is that we're coming to another point. I mean, what comes around goes around, and I'm wondering if we're coming to another high period. Uh, you know, in the 70s you had an unpopular war that was never declared a war that began, you could actually say, in 1960. That I remember when, I, you know, when as a kid I, could, I, I read that, advisors, quote, advisors, were being sent into Laos. And the reason I took note of that is because when you're a kid, you know, I mean, how much do you know about geography? But the Southeast map had been redrawn, you know, after the French left and there was no more French Indochina. And yeah. I look at the word Laos and go, well, that's got a lot of vowels in it. Like, what kind of country <laughs> is that? And I remember that in 60. And then, you know, I thought the war would go away. And then 10 years later, you know, I'm 19, and it's like, this sucker's not going away. What is going on with that? You know, so, I mean, we might be facing another situation if we, did, we didn't have it, obviously, in 91 with that Iraq thing. But now we've got it since 2001. We're there a long time, and it's not going away. And I'm wondering if we aren't seeing some of the same uh, treatment that the populace got back in the early 60s now that we're having it. Um, let me ask you this. Do you believe that the population is being pretty much prepared uh, to be nationalistic and jingoistic 
to get their peckers up for a further um, expansion of the war over in the Middle East? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, no doubt about it. I think we're, we're being prepared for a state of permanent war, pretty much, yeah. And um, that was, you know, probably one of the goals, you know, being pursued at Fort Hood was, uh, you know, to remind uh, the American people why we're at war over in the Middle East because of, uh, you know, how these crazed, uh, you know, Muslims. Is Muslim uh, fundamentalists, and you know the, there you go. There you see for yourself. These people are, you know, uh, yeah. I think yeah. It's 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 uh, it's definitely you know in part designed to uh, to remind the American people of why we're supposedly over there and how important our mission supposedly is. And uh, yeah, I, I think we're basically being prepared to enter into a state of basically permanent war that may even expand to additional fronts. I mean, we're already in Central Asia and the Middle East, and, uh, you know, it could very well expand in, you know, God knows where, Venezuela or something, you know, who knows what these people could have up their sleeves. Well, you know, when I look around, and this will be my last question to you, and thank you for spending the time with me, Dave. Oh, no problem. Um, Here's some of the things that happened in November, which I chronicled in, uh, a couple of the shows I did before, but just so you could, you know, just take them in and maybe uh, spit out what you might think might be the synthesis of this all. We had the movie come out, interestingly, about psyops called Men Who, Who Stare at Goats, okay? Remember that one? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, was, I haven't seen it. I've heard from different people. Is that like sort of like a metaphor for like the remote viewing? Well, it's a psyop. Yeah. Is that what that's all about? Yeah, it's a psyop that, you know, things can happen, but yeah, so so you got that. And then you have, of course, uh, Muhammad being executed, which brings back, you know, more of that. Uh, you also have um, uh, the, the, the book, Muslim Mafia, being um, really uh, promoted now on radio shows, which is a complete hit piece on uh, Islam. Uh, you also have a groundbreaking at 9-11 uh, at Shanksville that recalls 9-11, uh, what else do we have that happened? All oh, right. Uh, also, we had the Modern Warfare 2 uh, video game that debuted on November 10th. Um, 